0: Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Welcome to
1: the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. In today's episode, we have Jason Samkowiak of the Traditional Bowhunting and Wilderness Podcast as our guest. As the name implies, Jason is a traditional bowhunter based in Michigan. He's been successfully bowhunting and learning to hunt natural terrain for decades, and he's one of the most meticulous people I know in regards to his process and his gear. So, you know, when I wanted to get you on to talk to you today, there's, there's a couple things that I really like about your stuff. I mean, Number one, it seems like we have a lot in common just in terms of kind of your hunting style and how much of a gear nut you are. And I know Bobby's pretty much the same way. And so there's definitely some similarities there. So I really want to, you know, kind of pick your brain a little bit about, you know, kind of top to bottom, what kind of gear you're picking for a whitetail hunt. But then in addition to that, I think your knowledge and and kind of usefulness in scouting, especially in some of those, you know, Northern more big woods type habitat. I think the knowledge that you possess there is, is definitely uncommon. And so, I'd love to, you know, kind of pick your brain a little bit more on that topic as well.
2: Sounds perfect to me.
1: So, you're located exactly where? Um, in I'm Michigan?
2: in I'm in Houghton Lake, which is basically center of the Mit of the Lower Peninsula, right up by the, you know, in the, you know, um, northern Lower Peninsula is where I'm at. Kind of Houghton Lake, which is about um, i three hours north of Detroit, three hours north of Grand Rapids, right in the middle.
1: Okay. So. And what what's yep. the habitat mostly like? Is it no ag at all or is there some agriculture? What what's that? Kinda of flat, um, and hilly?
2: It's all flat here. Where I'm at it's it's pretty flat for for you know, seventy miles in any direction, it's pretty much flat. Um, like when I say flat, I mean like if you get 10, 12 foot elevation, you're pushing it, you know? Um, So it's pretty flat here. It's mostly uh, mixed hardwoods and conifers and some swamps and stuff like that. But uh, there is zero egg here. I mean, where I hunt, especially places I go to – it's it's all public land and a lot of it is oil well property where they you know they these huge companies lease all these oil wells out there and so they got like road access to be able to run these oil wells and stuff and it's uh there's no agricultural or any anything other than natural food for literally forty miles in any direction from them. So zero ag here whatsoever.
1: So is it kind of interspersed between like maybe chunks of, you know, higher ground, dry ground hardwoods and then like vast expanses of swamps kinda of interspersed?
2: Yeah, very similar it's uh it's a yeah you got um you know some areas it depends because I mean and you know being bull hunters especially a traditional bull hunter where we got to be you know where everything's 20 yards and under um topography and terrain are huge to me so like I live in the middle of the woods I could walk out my door and hunt right here on my property i I'm back up to state land on three sides but I very seldom hunt here instead I drive 35 or forty miles away to go hunt to terrain. Um, it has more diversification to it that lets me be able to take advantage of funnels and stuff. So I'm usually, the places I'm at are usually um, where I'm dealing with, uh, like you said, swampy lowlands, um, you know, fingers of uh, high timber through the middle of it, um, bogs that butt up to, um, you know, the occasional clear cuts, you know, anything that gives diversity in that vastness of, of open space is what I'm looking, or not open, but vastness of the same type of terrain. I'm trying to break it up. So where I'm at, it's. You know, it's pure northern oaks and swamps and hardwoods.
1: Yeah, it sounds a lot like if you drive a couple hours north of where I'm at in Minneapolis, you get a lot of that, you know, just kind of mixed, real flat, a lot of open bogs and spruce swamps and tamarack swamps and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've
2: watched a lot of your videos, and your stuff that you're at is very similar. As a matter of fact, that one you just did—what I don't remember what it was called—I actually commented on it when you did it um, and said something to you. I don't remember, but that one where you were doing that whole day in the in the Tamarack Bog. Yep. Um, in there you were scouting in there. That video was incredible, and the way you brought the detail in and explained why, spun around, explained to who you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, that video was epic. Straight up epic video on how to do this stuff.
1: Oh, I appreciate that, man. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm I'm pretty excited to actually hunt there that's you know like i mentioned in the video that was one of those places that i'd kind of been to a couple times in the past but never really hit it that hard and that was that you know first day that i was able to really take a a big long full day and really deep dive and you know kind of walk on that frozen ground and cover some miles
2: yep Yep, that was a beautiful setup. There's no doubt about it. But that's a lot of the stuff I hunt, um, that kind of stuff. And then I'm sure same with you, surrounded by hardwoods and oaks and, you know, poplar stands and stuff like that, you know, a good mix of everything kind of thing. And, and that's what I like. If it's, like I said, if you take, if, if you just got an area that's pure hardwoods or if, if it's the continuous same thing all the time, it's too hard to hunt it as a bow hunter. We need diversity in a terrain to be able to use that for funneling tactics.
0: And especially as a traditional bow hunter, wide yeah. open areas, it's, it just, it naturally goes against your nature of style hunting. So like you said, the terrain features are what you really need as a traditional bow hunter to bring those, you're into that sub 25, sub 20 yards, basically.
2: Yes, exactly. And actually, on that note too there, I got a couple spots. Some of my favorite spots are incredibly wide open places. Like I'm talking, you could see you could see a thousand yards in any direction and they got like little fingers and strips of like scrub brush and things going through them, and those deer use them like a highway. You know, anything that's a funnel, that's what I'm after. Yep.
1: So how do you like I guess where does your plan start when you're you know driving your thirty to forty minutes and you're picking those areas? Yeah, you're looking for diversity, but what exactly does that mean? I mean, are you looking for anything in particular? For example, would you, more, would you be more likely to key in on uh, a timbered area compared to an open area, say a, not, a, a timbered swamp versus a non-timbered marsh, or let's say a high ground, like an oak um, aspen flat next to like an area of dogwood or something like that. What are you ca- trying to key in on in terms of finding your uh, transition lines and finding your diversity?
2: Great question. Now it depends if it's scouting, I'm looking at everything and anything, but if you're talking about planning a hunt, um, it all starts the night before. Um, cause I, I like you guys, I'm running gun hunting. Now I'm not using a saddle. I still, you know, I use a lone wolf stand, but, uh, um, but it, the night before, if I plan on hunting the next day, that night, I'm looking at the wind direction, I'm taking into account what time of year it is. If uh, if it's early season, I want to focus on, I'm not I don't ever hunt food very often. I do catch I, I will chase white oak trees in the early season um, for evening sits. Um, but I'm trying if it's early season, I want to figure out where bedding and food is, and then I'm going to look for travel corridors between that as close to bedding areas as I can. So that night before, I check the wind direction, figure what that is. That's going to tell me where I can go. Then I start looking for opportunities where the food sources are they are going to be hitting at this particular day, whatever, you know, because it does change regularly with white oaks, um, you know, and maple leaves coming down and that kind of stuff. So once I know the wind direction, I know the food source I'm looking for, I start going over my stand sites I have, places that I haven't hunted yet that I can go into blind and I'm excited that I've, I've figured out on a map. And then I start putting all the pieces together. And then the next morning, that'll be my attack plan. I head in there, whether I've been there or not, or it's blind, I go in there, get set up and hunt it. But it it varies, but my, my... Number one rule that I guess that I seem to unconsciously follow is I always want to be as close to bedding as possible and I want to be in the thickest stuff I possibly can and I want it to be um, something that is going to relate to what it is their plans are for that day. That deer wakes up with an agenda for that day. I need to know what that agenda is so I know how to intersect them.
1: And so are you kind of prioritizing morning sits and evening sits equally or do you favor one versus the other?
2: I don't favor one versus the other. And actually, uh, somebody asked me that a while ago and I, last year, and I went through and looked at it. Um, I keep pretty good records and I think it's about 120 something deer that I've killed so far. And out of those, it was about even, I want to say it was 60 of them were morning and 49 at the time it was, you know, it was about even for morning and evenings. Um, So they're both running pretty even. I don't put more emphasis on one versus the other. I also don't pay attention to, I don't believe in any October laws. I don't uh, I don't think the rut is better than any other time. None of that, you know, for me, if you've got a time to hunt, even hours of the day, Um, I'm not I can't tell you it's been 13 or 16 something like that deer that I've killed where I was literally working in the morning doing meetings and then all of a sudden it's noon and I'm like you know what I don't got another meeting until two o'clock and I would literally in the clothes I'm wearing in my jeans and everything grab my bow grab my my tree stand rig, run across the road here and go into a spot that's OK, set up and kill a deer there at, at you know, one thirty in the afternoon, you know. Um, so I don't put any emphasis on any of that stuff. Um, one key tip I will say that I find it does, that not a lot of people know about that is worth millions to know is um, you, know, you get it there where you guys are as well. Now, I don't know about Utah, but I know that uh, when you're in uh, Minnesota, you get these days too in October where it can be, uh, you know, it's, it's hotter than it should be, way hot. Yep. Um, on those days, a lot of people say I don't want to hunt. It's too hot. The deer won't move. Believe it or not, I find the best movement on those days is going to be between ten o'clock, eight, between ten a.m. and two o'clock in the afternoon on the hottest days you can find. Reason for it is is because usually the temperatures don't peak out till usually, They usually peak like let's say it gets dark at six temperatures peak at like five o'clock is when it gets to that 80 degrees or whatever it is and then it stays that way till an hour or so after dark before it starts to really taper off but in the morning throughout the day it's actually slowly rising to get to that point and so it, it you know at 10 a.m 11 a.m noon you could actually on an 80 degree day it might only still be 65 or 70 degrees so it's a huge temperature distance and those deer know it and I think they move a lot longer in the morning but I've had so much success expect- on days where people say don't go in the woods it's too hot and or they'll go out and sit for the first hour i don't ever see anything that first hour because i think those deer are still held up in the feeding areas which i don't hunt feeding areas but they're making it back to bedding noon one you know that kind of stuff is when they're actually making it back into there and i think it's because they know that it's going to be too hot they're going to lock down for the next five hours
1: oh yeah that the deer that i shot on opening day last year It had gotten up to 95 degrees that afternoon and those deer came through probably, I don't know, I want to say an hour and a half after sunup, you know, Mm -hmm. dead dead calm before that. But yeah, they're much later movement than I would have expected on that day.
2: Yep. Yeah. It's a, I, I, you know, it just comes from me. I don't ever like getting out of a tree now in the evening. It's easy because you're forced out of there by darkness, right. but in the morning, I, I I'll tell you what I started at like 10 o'clock and I say, all right, another half hour. And then at one I'm still going, okay, maybe just one more half hour, <laughs> you know? And then it's like, I might as well just stay here.
1: <laughs> so what I've noticed on that type of habitat and granted in Minnesota, we got tons and tons and tons of public land. When you start to consider that type of habitat, and I think, you know, some of the, the stuff closer to the bigger cities and some of the stuff that's in, you know, more agriculture or bluff country or, you know, things like that tend to get harder, hit harder by bow hunters and, and obviously by gun hunters. But when you get into some of that more big woods type habitat, it seems like it'll get hit by gun hunters, but it doesn't seem to get hit nearly as hard by bow hunters. And I wonder if as a result of that, you start to get some more of that, you know, deer movement that could be you know, more any time of the day versus literally your first light and last light that the deer might get more accustomed to in the higher pressure areas. Do you think that has anything to do with it?
2: Uh, In some places, probably here, no, because of the fact that we have literally like 900,000 crossbow hunters, something, some ungodly number of crossbow people here. I mean, these guys are insane. They're they're Literally every tree that you look at, you could walk out in the woods in October and you could stand there for 10 seconds and behind 10 trees, there'll be 10 crossbow hunters. You know, they're everywhere. (laughs) Yep. So, so the pressure level here, and I saw it when it wasn't allowed to have crossbows unless you were hand, d- disabled. Um, so I seen the progression and there's so many of them out there. Now the pressure's big. But as you guys know as well too, most of these guys are not diehard hunters, so they stick to the fringes. And here in Michigan, we're allowed to bait, so these guys are running bait piles. So because they got to carry bait, pretty much every dirt road, two track, power line, anything you have for the 200 yards in every direction off of them, there is bait piles every place. You know, so once you learn to avoid those, those deer learn to avoid them as well too. So if you get, you know, you get anywhere from a half mile in to a mile in, you have it all to yourself, and you're our tech. Technically, hunting on pressured deer because they know better. But, uh, you know, but pressure-wise, every road is, you know, it's, it's pretty jam-packed here for, during bull season. Gun season's just as bad. Well, I think we're up to, we're almost a million gun hunters here in Michigan. It's pretty insane.
1: Wow. So, when you scout then, do you intentionally look f- to try and find people's, you know, you know permanent ladder stands and bay piles and stuff? Or do you just kind of assume that most of that stuff is going to be in a certain area and you're just going um in deeper and once you get kind of past that little buffer zone then you're just kind of taking it you know like you normally would
2: that's a great question too and i actually i kind of do two methods because i'll tell you what i scout a lot and i'm running into a lot of people that are doing a lot of deep going in deep and they're actually bringing in ladder stands like i'll look at some of these setups. There are three quarters of a mile in and i'm thinking why why in the heck you had to take like a, <laughs> 10 guys carry all this crap in here you know um so i do see some people in some really good sets and i'll be honest with you if i come in and i see a stand in a great setup i can tell right off the bat if it's a gun hunter because they're set up on the end of a point overlooking where they can shoot 600 yards you know that if i know it's a gun hunter i'll come in and bow hunt it once or twice in that area not from his stand but in that area without a problem but uh, if it's a bow hunting setup and he's in a pretty good spot i will actually stand out of there and just move on because like you guys I'm hunting a big enough tract of public that I don't need to to be there and if I think they're doing it right then I leave them alone the other ones the ones that I know are that I see all the time that are on the fringes not doing things right you know you know that the deer are going to use them as a no-go area um, because of the scent because of the bait because of this stuff deer will avoid them like the plague during daylight so when I find those spots I use them to my advantage so on my map when I'm looking at that area where that hit that 100-yard area around him, I mark it off and say that is a no-go deer area. So I will actually use it like a funnel. So if I got a, say I got a swamp edge and I got 200 yards from that swamp edge and he's over here 200 yards away, I know that now my 200-yard wide uh, funnel just got narrowed down to 100 yards because they won't go within 100 yards of his stand. So I'll get closer to that Um, that swamp edge, knowing that they're going to bypass him without him even knowing it, but he's a blocker for me. So I use people like that a lot. Um, Even and I don't hunt here in November too much during gun season, because I'm always in other states, but when I used to hunt here a lot, I would go out there a night or two before the opener of gun season, and I would see where everybody parks their cars, all the tire tracks in these areas, so I know who's hunting where and when, and I would definitely use those to my area, or my advantage. I would pick them on a map, find an area that's probably two or three miles square with road access all the way around it. Make sure there's tons of tracks all the way around it. If there is, I would literally get out there at four in the morning, get in the middle of that and just sit there all day and let them push deer by me. And there were times I'd see 75 deer in one day on opening day of gun season, you know, and they had no idea I'm even in there. They just pushing deer at me as they come and go. So yeah, so I use pressure to my advantage a lot when I can. Um, but if they're in a great set, if there's somebody that I got a lot of respect for what they're doing, I actually will just shy away and give it all to them. Good luck to you. You're doing great. And you know, I almost want to leave a card there that says, Hey, if you kill one, call me, I'm I'm here. I'll come help you.
1: (laughs) I'm curious. Are are people allowed to leave stands in the place that you hunt or does it just kind of happen?
2: Uh, it, it happens a lot, but now there is rules. You have to have your name on your tree stand, your name and your address or your name and your driver's license if it is going to be left out. All stands cannot be put out until I – th- I, I can't remember because I don't leave stands out, but it's either, uh, it's either two weeks before the season uh, starts – or maybe maybe a month before but they have to all be pulled within a month after the season so they're only allowed to be out there during that time but when i'm out there scouting in the spring you know if i go out there and i scout, if i'm scouting you know if i go out there and spend a whole day scouting i'll pass 35 tree stands you know especially Mm -hmm. when i'm closer to the road because i also hunt i i go deep a lot But I also, one of the tactics I've been using for the last few years is, uh, because now with GPSs, Hunt on X, all this amazing technology, and now we're getting cell service in a lot of the areas where I hunt, we used to not have it, so this stuff wouldn't work. Now that it is, there's a lot of people that are going deeper, and uh, so I've actually got a lot of spots where I've been having a lot of great luck being closer to the road. So I'm either 50 yards off of the road where people are driving by, waving at me, going, what's that moron doing right there in a tree stand? <laughs> um, or I'm, I'm way deep where nobody can find me.
1: Yeah, it seems like there's that that nice little buffer area where if you get you know past everybody or closer to everybody, we had the same kind of mindset out west. It was like you either had the, the guys on horses that were going in four or five miles or you had the guys hunting from the road. It was like if you could get in between them. It's like, oh, that's where you found the, the unpressured animals. Same type of right. deal.
2: That is the, the key, in my opinion, is to find deer that are not pressured during daylight. And in order to find that, it's all 100% based on scent if a person walks through there whether they're a hiker a biker a mushroom pick not that they're mushroom picking in the fall any activity small game hunters we got a lot of small game here like you guys do we're at too. a lot of small game hunters that are running dogs here um they stick to the roads they stick to the two tracks and the fringes um you know any of this kind of stuff anywhere there's activity that's leaving scent on the ground during hunting season that is pressure so find the area where nobody is going to walk if that means uh you got a bus brush to get through there you gotta Put hit boots on to get to it. Doesn't matter. Just go somewhere where nobody is, and that's where they are during
1: daylight. Do you guys have uh, dog hunters running bears out there too, or is that a a bait only type of deal?
2: Yeah, no, there there is. It's a pro. You know, I I I get them. The kicker part is they can, and it's actually legal here for them to actually come and hit your bait sites and start their dogs from your bait site. So that's kind of a problem. But here where I'm at, we can only get a, I get a bear tag about once every 10 years, you know, about nine to 10 years here. Wow. So it's so limited. I pulled one last year and uh, I, I had big bears coming in, but they would always come in an hour and a half after dark. I couldn't break them, whatever I did. Um, but we do have them, but our season here is in September. So it's usually over before bowl season starts on October 1st here mm-hmm. for the most part in my area. So they're not too bad of a deal. But September 15th is opening a small game. Bird hunters, squirrel hunters, everybody's running around in the woods like crazy. And because you can bait here about September 1st, September 15th, whatever the day, I don't bait. So whatever the day is they can legally start is when all of these guys are hanging tree stands, they're putting bait piles out. I mean, we're technically only allowed to bait with two gallons spread over a 10 by 10 area. That's all you can have in the woods at one time. I have, I I walked into bait piles again, being a mobile hunter in a lot of the places I've never even stepped foot in. I'm picking them on a map and heading there. On the way there, I'm crossing over bait piles and some of these things, it's literally a dump truck I don't mean a pickup truck I mean it is a dump truck load of sugar beets and baits they they span for half an acre you know I've seen some pretty crazy stuff so as far as um like I said a lot of activity in the woods is basically best way to put it
1: do you favor spring scouting above all you know kind of when the hopefully the stuff is still frozen a little bit easier to walk on the wet stuff before the greenage comes up or do you I guess favor in season type scouting more
2: uh, I think not, I don't think anything beats in season. So, um, for me, the only time I'm not, if I still have tags in my pocket, I don't scout in season a lot, but the times I do are, um, the days that it's pure straight up miserable thunderstorms or pouring rain to the point where you just, you, you can't hunt. Um, I will use those as scouting. I'll, I'll scout my butt off during those days. Cause they're like a free day because the rain's washing your scent away immediately um so i'll do that i got good rain gear and i'll be out i'll spend all day out there sometimes believe it or not my wife laughs but if it's pouring rain during the hunting season i'm not gonna lie i'll go out there with my headlamp on full blast and my head, my flashlight full blast and i'll actually scout at night even if i want to check areas out just because the rain's won't giving me the free option um so in season scouting is the best if you can do it um I do like spring scouting better than anything else or better than any other time of the year other than in season. Now, the kicker here where I'm at in the north, we get so much snow here that I don't usually have the grounds there. The the marshes are thawed out by the time the snow is gone. Mm. So I don't get that. Like you guys get a lot of that where you still have the frozen ground and no snow. So you can walk on the marshes and the cattails and everything and still have that easy walking but still see the ground. Uh, I don't get that too often here. So for me, it's usually it's a real short window because it's usually we have snow here till till usually april and then by usually beginning of may the ferns are up and so i got like a short four to five week window where it's my world and i i try and get out there and do as much as i can
1: yeah that's the top thing even even here i mean it's not that long of a period when you have kind of the perfect conditions of ice and no snow and no greenage you know it seems like you get cold 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 and all of a sudden it's 50 degrees for a week and everything's melted and it's it's all gone in like no time yep
2: yep and if I I want it either frozen solid or not frozen at all because the worst is that thin ice you know where you can step for one step on it punch through every step yep yeah i'm actually i've been suffering the last month my knee's been blown out because i was in hip boots out there i was scouting scouting a swamp and i had caught a root wrong and twisted you know in the water and i bit it and fell down and the water fills your hip boots and takes you right under too and uh but i twisted my knee up pretty bad that it's been i've been finally i'm at like 60 percent of it right now but i mean i couldn't even like get up and downstairs i couldn't do nothing for a few weeks from it. it i i like it yeah, that, that walking in the marshes, man, I want it either thawed out completely or froze solid, not that half halfway stuff.
1: Yeah, it seems like you burn about six times as many calories, and you're kind of busting through that crust every, t- every step.
2: Yeah. Do you guys
1: have those marshes out there where it's
2: like the, the moss-covered bowling balls? you know basically yeah. it's like a big bog and in, under there it's like literally they're like 16 pound bowling balls covered with moss so you have to step on every one of them and they're rolling and moving and i'll tell you what you walk 100 yards in there and it's like you ran 30 miles straight sprint. It's
1: exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> we got a little bit of everything i think we got the you know we got the cattail marshes we got uh that thing you just described you know i don't know if that's the same thing as you know what you'll hear people talk about is like hummocks but we got yeah just those little little bumps and mounds everywhere that you got to walk around. Yeah. And then we got the, yeah. Yeah. we got the hardwood swamps and we got the floating bogs where it feels like you're walking on a waterbed and you don't want to punch through.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always an adventure. You learn some interesting walking techniques. So when you try and walk deer, because you learn instantly, don't go on the deer trails. Well, you walk to deer trails, but don't walk in the middle of deer trails. Because one minute it's, you know, eight inches deep. The next minute it's three feet deep. You know, so you learn to duck walk the sides of them.
1: That's actually one of the, the tactics I use to try and figure out if the trails I'm looking at in an aerial photo are deer trails or hunter trails. If it's really wide, I always figure it's most likely a hunter that's that's taking that route out from the road or off of a point or something to get out deeper in the marsh because every time he's walking out there, he's he's stepping a little bit further out, getting wider and wider and wider to try and make sure he stays on something halfway solid.
2: That's pretty brilliant. I never thought about that, but now I'm gonna I'm stealing that. I'm going to use it next <laughs> time I'm out if you're paying attention because the deer will walk right down that trail. You're right. They, you know, they follow the same steps with no problem, but you're right. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to check that out.
1: Yeah, you can tell some of them are really obvious when you look at the the aerial photos. It's like, uh, oh, it doesn't look like a deer trail to
0: me. Looks yeah. like you could drive a four wheeler down it for the most part because of how wide they made it over time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, especially here with, like I said, where you guys have baiting where you not you guys can't bait for you don't even have uh, any options for baiting or anything in either one of your states, right?
1: Uh, Wisconsin, certain counties, you can bait. And I think it's you okay. know similar to Michigan where it's a limited, I don't know, remember what it is, a gallon or two gallons or something per 40 acres. Uh, but Minnesota is no baiting. And I'm pretty sure they got rid of the like salt and minerals and stuff too.
2: Yeah.
0: You can bait yeah. in Utah, but then in Missouri, uh, you can only, you can bait up to like 15 days before season and you have to pull all bait by then.
2: Yeah. Now, are you hunting in Missouri every, still each year? I know you used to live there. Yeah. You're not there anymore though, right? But you hunt yep. in Missouri
0: each year? Yeah, yeah I, I got family there. Year.
2: Yep. Missouri is one of my favorites. The public land there is getting way overrun. Um, you know, a lot of people on it, um, but I, I definitely love Missouri. I, I make a point to get out there first week of November every year. It's one of my favorite states.
0: Yeah, it really depends. Like northern Missouri has gotten real bad. If you go down to the Ozarks, you know, where me and Garrett hunted this fall, we didn't see anybody during bow season. Um, yeah. But that's just the way it all, because nobody wants to heart Mark Twain National Forest. It's just, it's a tough cookie to crack. Uh, whereas you get up in northern Missouri and a lot of the ag land around those public land, there's a lot of people up there.
2: Yeah, that's where I am, northeast Missouri, you know, right there. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's definitely loaded with people, no doubt about it. But, I mean, it's, it's fun, and we keep going back to the same area because it's a pretty huge area, and I can get away from people pretty good. And, I, I you know, you, you invest time, you start learning it, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I love Missouri. But uh, I like that there's, you know, no you can't bait there on public land, you know, or at least we don't see anybody doing it. So I, I like the state snow baiting. Of all the states I have hunted, Michigan is by far the hardest state to hunt. Um, because of the fact that you compete with baiters think about a deer's life cycle for the entire year and how you try to pattern what they're doing you try you you know they're coming for acorns you know they're going after maple leaves you understand that they got browse in the winter you you know their food cycles and what they're doing and where they're bedding. and then all of a sudden two weeks before the season it's a smorgasbord of carrots and sugar beets and corn every year Thirty yards. There's a pile of food for them, and they don't have to come to it. They can eat it all night long when they have the security. It, it just throws a wrench in such a game plan. It's so hard to 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 figure out how to make that work here. So yeah, it's it's tough.
1: Yeah, that's the one common denominator when you listen to people talk about various states. It always seems like Michigan is is always near the top, if not you know the top for states that people think are the you know one of the hardest to actually be successful in.
2: Yeah. Well, they, got a, they passed a law that there was no more baiting. They passed it, but now there's talk of them reverting that and turning it back around, mm-hmm. but they did actually pass the law, so I was pretty excited. January 31st this year, baiting was banned in all, every county of Michigan and no longer allowed, and I was so excited, but like I said, we'll see what happens by the time the season rolls around.
1: Is that kind of one of those deals where you get a bunch of really passionate you know, guys that are you know hardcore hunters, and they, they work really hard to get this thing passed, and everybody else is... It's just kind of oblivious, and then once the law passes, the the vast, you know, the majority were out there that like to bait. Are like, hey, wait a second, you know, how, how did you pull the wool over eyes on this one? And they try and get it repealed. Well, it's because of the CWD.
2: That was the reason. So oh, they was tried it? To okay. cancel it because of CWD, but now there's people that are throwing such a fit because they're they're quote unquote, you can't kill a deer in Michigan unless you bait. Uh there's no ag here. It's all northern. You know, everybody comes from down south where there's no public land up here to the north and they come hunt, and they got to have that bait pile uh, or you can't kill a deer here you know so they that's their attitude and so they're trying to uh, turn it around because they're afraid of losing hunters that people won't hunt anymore uh the massive amount of money lost to it due to that not having the people coming up north to hunt and going and staying at all the hotels and the bars and the restaurants and so it's it's all a political thing and i i, I i'm over it either way i've hunted here with bait for so long that you learn how to work around it it. But um, I was kind of hoping they'd get rid of it. But I just will not take it anyway it comes. Just give me my tags and let me fill my freezer. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you brought up an interesting point regarding the, you know, the food cycles. And I think for the most part, I would say most deer hunters are familiar with the fact that deer like white oak acorns in the upper Midwest. But some of the other food sources, some of the natural brows, I don't think are nearly as as commonly known or understood. What are some of the big ones that you kind of find and, and try and key in on?
2: Well, basically, white oaks here where I'm at, because they started falling about mid-September is when the white oaks hit the ground. Uh, our season doesn't open till October first. So I would say by the time the season opens, probably forty to forty percent of white oaks are already completely wiped out. Um, but I focus hard on those trees, those white oak trees, uh, for the first couple weeks of the season. I'm chasing those trees. Uh, I've usually pre-scouted, not individual trees, but areas that I, I can see them. You know, I'll usually go out there in the uh, end of July and, and August. And I'll use binoculars and see what trees look pretty good in, in certain areas. And then I'll key in on those in the first few weeks of the season. Then I start to transition once the maple leaves start coming down. maple leaves uh, they love the maple leaves once they hit the ground they're loaded with sugars and they really just eat them up so i try and find areas of those which are usually close proximity to um, clear cuts and poplar stands and things like that Uh, so i'll start scouting those areas and looking for fresh signs of crap and stuff like that in there and it tells me that they're in them Uh, so that's food sources that i'll pay attention to Um, and then usually about the time the white oaks are gone the Uh, Red oaks have been on the ground long enough that they start leaching out their acids pretty good because they won't touch a red oak for a few weeks, probably three to four weeks from when they hit the ground, they won't touch them because they're so tannic. But once the rains hit and stuff like that, and the sun bleaches them, they start to get tolerable. Um, And so usually come November... Uh, You know, November through December, they start hitting the red oaks. There's a lot more red oaks here where I am than white oaks. So there's the the red oaks will last all the way through till the snow covers them up and buries them. Um, So that's a kind of good thing. And in the browse, browse, I hit really hard in December, Uh, especially when the snow covers up the acorns because they can't get to them. They can't smell them and find them anymore. Um, Browses anything from maples to poplars or to poplars to aspens to willows to dogwood to any basically anything that they can that has a bud on the end of it they're going after for the most part um, I've even seen them eat you know they'll they'll eat you know bark off a of cedar they'll eat pine um, you know the cambium layer of pine I, I've seen them eat all kinds of stuff but I think that wintertime heavy forage is going to be anything that they can bud on, that they can reach. So think two, three, four-year-old clear cuts. Anything that's got something they can reach with a lot of sticks and branches with buds on them, those become magnets in the wintertime.
1: So it seems like as you kind of went through that progression, we gradually also went from areas where the food is most isolated to most spread out. You know, it's like you got those white oaks that are... you can find them, you know, with you do your deer scouting and you can, there's not as many of those around red oaks. Like you said, there's more of those. So once those acorns start to get hit and then there's a little bit harder to pinpoint. Same thing with maple leaves. You know, if they're kind of spread out, it might be a little bit more difficult to isolate exactly which ones are going to get hit. Uh, but then w- once you get into the browse period, it's like, man, how do you know what? Correct. It, it, it's tough. Yeah.
2: Well, but that's where my my approach to hunting comes in handy because I actually don't care. So I said, I don't usually pick individual trees. I don't care what white oaks they're hitting. I don't care what red oaks they're hitting. I don't care what browse area they're hitting. All I need to know is the general area they're going to do that at because if I know that they're going to – if I know that this – six acre clear cut that was cut three years ago is hot in December, even though, you know, if I know that that's going to be where they're at. I'm seeing fresh bud signs in there um, and browse sign. And I'm seeing fresh piles of poop in there and I know that they're actually in there eating. I don't, I'm not going to hunt in there very often, but I can then look on the maps and I can find where bedding is going to be. And then I can pay attention. Okay. If I got three bedding areas around here, if they're bedding here, they're going to want to come into here from this because of this wind. And then, and then I'm going in and Setting up closer to that bedding so I'm trying to catch them before they get in there so I even morning and evening I'm always trying to be closer to the bedding but in order to pick the bedding you need to know what the food source is
0: so you're you're looking more for the the funnel that leads the deer to that source than particularly that source whether it be that stand of trees you're not hunting in that stand of trees you may be hunting 70 80 90 100 yards from that stand of trees towards the bedding area trying to catch that transition
2: Exactly. Yep. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it might literally be, you know, it might be a half mile away from there in some of these isolated right. areas. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's basically exactly what I'm trying to do. Now, I'm not saying I don't climb up next to a white oak. this, You know, if I'm heading into scouting an area I've never been in or on my way to a specific stand and I cross a white oak and it's got 30 piles of scat underneath of it and I got caps left on the ground showing me they're hitting it, but I still have acorns that have, you know, still have acorns and just caps down there i know that tree is getting hit like right now and don't think for a second that i won't yank that stand off my back and shoot straight up in that tree and just and, and stay there the rest of the night you know i'm hoping that it, they're coming to that destination tree and, and it does pan off or pan out a lot i don't usually do it with the reds too much because the reds are very scattered but white oaks in the early season yeah like i said if i if i find a white oak that's hot i'm on it right away for a night sit i don't ever sit on them in the morning
0: and as Garrett mentioned, the further into the year you get, the broader those food sources get. So that's where, like you said, you can hunt a white oak tree if it's dropping. Yeah. But as you get into the browse, it's really once they browse a tree, that tree is pretty much done. Whereas that area that they're browsing may be there for weeks or, you know, a couple of days, at least in that general area that you can hunt in. So that's where you're hunting the transition to that area.
2: Yeah. You know, I never thought about it that way, but that's probably exactly why I do it is because I don't have any way to narrow them down in there. So I automatically stay closer to the bedding because that's where I know I can narrow them. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I wouldn't, you, you need to have them. I, I need, my whole world is basically 40 yards, 20 in front of me and 20 behind me. And that's it. That's what I have. My whole world is 40 yards. If you're outside of that, I maybe mean, might as well be a mile away. Yeah, and honestly, it's realistically more like you know thirty-five yards. You know, it's it's I I like that fifteen, eighteen yards is my comfort zone.
1: Yeah, I mean, even to me, when I scout in the snowy areas and I'm just I pick a pick of deer's tracks to follow, and you can see him stop and you know eat bark for a little bit and keep on going. Man, it just seems like sometimes they're so nomadic and you look at a map of the route you just walked and it's like you can't really pick out a rhyme or reason. I think that's that's why you almost have to, you know, really spend a lot of focus on getting close to those betting areas because that's like the best chance you got.
2: It's the one known. It's the given, especially in the big woods. You know, if you're hunting, like, I again, I hunt a lot of different states. And when I'm in Kansas, when I'm in Missouri, it's so easy to identify where they're going to feed, where food is, where bedding is, where the funnels they have to travel through. I mean, classic funnels. I mean, pinch points, things like that. It's so obvious that they jump right out at you in a lot of those areas. Here in the big woods, you they're they're more on a micro level and much harder to see and find. And uh, um, you, you just, you know, like I said, sometimes you're scratching your head going how you know i mean you, it, it, you're saying you could have an area i could i could drive down an old two track four-wheel drive two track and in the winter time and i'll see 25 deer trails cross it in a hundred yard period there'll be 25 trails that, that cross that zone you look at it and you go god i i can't figure out how to hunt that there's no way you know I, each trail's, you know 20, 30 yards apart from each other. There's no way for me to do that. But all I have to do is stop right there, pull it up on my phone, look at what's there, and go, oh, you know what? Once they get here and they're going to try and round a bend of that bog, they're all going to merge together. Yeah. I get out, of, I, I drive up another 500 yards, park my truck, sneak in the back way. I hit that bog right there, and sure enough, every single trail merges right there, and it looks like a cattle trail coming through there. Throw my stand up, kill deer, call it a day. You know, so it's all um, looking for something that is going to narrow them down. Cause like you said, they meander, they wander, they, they go, they do whatever they want to do here. It's not quite the same as, as ag land and farmland and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. They can do whatever they want. Same cover type everywhere.
1: When you're and back to early season, when you're looking at uh, white oaks, you probably have, I would imagine waypoints marked where historically you found them. Do you also take any time before the season to kind of pre-scout and just see which oak trees seem to have a, a heavy crop that year or look like they might be, you know, hot come October 1st.
2: I do usually on rainy days and um, like I said, I, especially because by the time July and August roll around, the, the ferns are so tall, I can't, you know, literally I'm only like five foot six. So literally I, I look like a, you know, like a hound jumping through there trying to <laughs> see over top of them sometimes, you know. Um, so I usually go out that time of year and uh, uh, on the rainy days, once you get past about July 15th, I try to not go into woods at all unless it's raining. I don't want my scent in there. I don't want to be, I don't want to have those deer alert to me at all. So I go in on the rainy days uh, and I'll use my binoculars. I'll bring my 10 power binoculars. and I just start scanning some of those trees and I just looking for areas that are going to be good. Now, actually, the ones that are really good, I don't care about too much because, again, they start falling mid-September and our season doesn't open until October 1st. So I look for the ones that are a little later blooming than the other ones are because those are the ones I know will be dropping during my hunting time.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
2: Yep. A lot of states,
1: like I know Wisconsin, you
2: guys have like a, they have a September 15th, I think,
1: right? Is it in the 15th? Yeah, it's usually right around there. Same thing with Minnesota.
2: Yeah, so you guys get to take advantage of that start when the white oaks are, which is huge. Um, for us, waiting till October 1st, like I said, everything loves a white oak. You know, I don't know if you ever ate one, but they're actually pretty good. You know, they're, they're not bad to eat. Um, the red oaks still make you basically turn your face inside out if you try eating one <laughs> of them. So they they love the the whites and everything does. So they get ate up pretty quick. So if you have, a, if I lived in a state that had a September 15th opener, I would spend so much time paying attention to where, uh, what trees are going to drop first. And I would just focus on them that first week. I would just be bouncing uh, white oak to white oak to white oak looking for them. Cause you get that advantage.
1: Do you guys have bur oaks and swamp white oaks? And do you kind of lump that into the same category as just like a, you know, a typical white oak or do you guys not have those or treat them separately?
2: We, I don't have many of them here where I am. I know some of the areas in the South does, they got more of the swamp oaks down there, but here where we're at, we don't have, all, all it is here that we focus on is red and white.
1: Gotcha. And for the longest time, and you're obviously a big traditional bow hunter, but you, you haven't really done, you know, much of any kind of hunting outside of that for quite a long time. Is that correct? I killed
2: my first deer with a compound in 91 or 2 or 3, 92 or 3, something like that. I shot one deer with a compound. It um, was actually a suicidal deer. I was actually, first year, I, I, I was sitting on the ground on my butt, Indian style with my legs crossed, watching a trail in front of me, knew nothing about any of this stuff. And then a, uh, three does came in behind me at like 17 yards, and they stopped right behind me. My bow was laying on the ground next to me. I actually turned, looked at them, stood up, got up, grabbed my bow, came to full draw in the open. She stood there the whole time. I put my pin on, leveled it out, shot her. <laughs> 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 so that was the only deer I've ever killed with a compound. Was that very first one? And then, uh, and then, that, uh, then I bought a faster bow. I bought a Browning ballistic mirage or something it was with this overdraw and all this fancy crap. And my arrows were like crossbow bolts. And, um, and I shot it, uh, I shot it for a little while and the whole thing started, it, it split limbs twice it cracked limbs, things were coming apart. And I said, forget it. And I went and bought a recurve. And so since night that was still that same first year. So if it was 93 that I killed that first year so, so since 93, I, I hunted with a compound for about three months and then everything else has been with a traditional bull. Never killed a deer. The only thing I've ever killed with a a gun has been a couple of rabbits, a couple of, you know, rabbits, squirrels, and uh, and a coyote. That's, you know, that's the only thing I've ever killed with a gun.
1: And so then as you get closer to firearm season in Michigan, that's when you start to take your out-of-state trips?
2: I pretty much, I haven't been here in Michigan for during to hunt. I may get like two days during the whole month of November to hunt here in Michigan. Otherwise my November is spread in other States has been that way for about the last 12 or 13 years. So I don't get a lot of time here in in Michigan during what we call our gun season, which is November 15th through the 30th here.
1: Do you have any particular favorites for when you go on your sort of November vacation?
2: Kansas is' an, is a no-brainer Kansas is great. Um, it's very hard to find areas in there where you can draw tags on a regular basis but uh um, but Kansas is you know, if, if Kansas is just easy, I mean, there's a lot of deer. They're and they're they're really big, and it's really easy. No offense to anybody that hunts in Kansas, because <laughs> uh, like I said, I know they get it. But I mean, when I see a picture on on forums and stuff, and they're you know they're holding this deer and this thing's you know 160 inch deer, and if it says Kansas, I'm like, oh, just like getting a button buck here. You know, <laughs> uh, it's a whole different world. You know, I mean, the, the deer in Kansas, I, I like it there for that aspect. Missouri's another one. Missouri has. Now, keep in mind, I've only hunted one area in Missouri, um, same area all these years, but that particular northeast area. It's got the right mix of big deer that are there. They're hidden well. They're not real dumb and uh, you've got to work hard for them, and there's enough other deer to keep you occupied and busy. And if you're somebody who like me who isn't a trophy hunter at all, um, it's a happy place. So um, there's a lot of great states. We used to hunt Illinois all the time until you couldn't get in there anymore. That's another great one. We hunted Shawnee National Forest there. Um, you know, pretty much everywhere I go, it's all public now. And uh, there's a lot of great places. Indiana, I went there last year for the first time. I was only there for two and a half days, but I was in the deer constantly and had a blast, and that was in January. Um, You know, I I like a lot of these different states. I want to hit Kentucky. I haven't been there yet, but that's on my to-do list. Um, In Oklahoma, as soon as I can't pull Kansas anymore, or as soon as I try and they tell me, hey, you didn't draw it this year, I'm heading to Oklahoma.
0: Have you ever thought about putting in for the McAllister hunt there in Oklahoma? I,
2: I, you know, um, and I I haven't. And the reason for it is a lot of those are, um, I try to not focus on the draw hunts because of the fact that, you know, Um, I want to learn the area over and over again, you know, because usually your first time you go into a spot, you're only Mm -hmm. there for a week, you know, so you go in for one week and you barely learn it but you know at the beginning but then when you come back next year you're already like so much further ahead than you were that year before so i try to that's why we i say we've stayed in the same area in northeast missouri um kansas we've stayed basically in the same two units um we try to stay in those same areas because that way you can learn as much about it as possible and every year i get better and better at it you know
0: makes sense and if
2: you do a, yeah you do a draw hunt you may not get it for three more years by then you forget it's the terrain changes and you know it's it's hard to follow
0: and i know that McAllister hunt it's a army ammunition depot if i remember correctly and it's a traditional only draw hunt basically yeah and they they really limit you to even what units and what areas you can hunt so even if you draw every other year you may not even get the same area open yep. for you to hunt in those years uh, but they do have some just Stomper Deer on there for Oklahoma, that's for sure.
2: And Stomper Deer in Oklahoma are, like, uh, huge deer for everywhere else in the world. I mean, there's, that's massive. Uh, but even yeah. Kansas has got some of those, like, uh, Maradocene, and they got some of these special draw unit areas where your odds of killing Whopper Deer are so good. But, again, you may not be back there for five, six more years. So, to me, it's almost, you know, wasting that time and not, you know, because I, I don't get to learn it, you know.
0: Right.
1: I definitely – see eye to eye on you for that strategy I mean people people talk about you know putting in for like Iowa tags and it's like yeah if you hunt there once every three years like that's that's great but for that amount of money I could hunt the same place three years in a row and get to learn three times as well and there's still there might not be as many big deer but there's still going to be some and with that extra experience you're just as likely I feel like to to get one of them if that's what you're after.
2: Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm not by any means a trophy hunter, not even a little bit. I mean, I try to not shoot little baby deer too much. You know, as far yeah. as little bucks, I'd rather leave them out there for everybody else. But on the same note um You know, I, I'm just not pinky. I couldn't tell you the difference on the hoof. I, unless they were side by side, I could not tell you the difference between a inch deer and a 180 inch deer. Honestly, I just learned which one was a G2 like three years ago. You know, so <laughs> uh, you know, I've just never, it never cared too much. But um I'll tell you this: the way that the whole the U.S. is structured when it comes to deer hunting, you can. Either if you want to do hotels, you want to, like I live in a wall tent. I'm in a wall tent six weeks a year and I straight up love it. But I can take my little bitty trailer, my five by eight trailer with my wall tent, my whole rig. For the price of tags, I can travel anywhere I want to and hunt every single I can hunt anytime I want from basically September first all the way through February fifteenth. And you can be into deer on public land anytime you want to be. And it just doesn't get any better than that. So um, you know, I, I love the public aspect like you guys do. You know, I mean I, I that's that's my whole world. I can I can hunt five different states a year and it doesn't cost me a thousand dollars. You know, all I gotta do is find a time to be able to get out of work to do it, you know.
1: When you're hunting out of the wall tent like that, do you have, um, do you just kind of go like shower free for a week or however long you're gonna hunt, or do you like just take off and go to like you know pit stops or whatever, or how do you how do you kind of manage the the hygiene aspect of it?
2: I take a shower every day, and it's the thing you look forward to most at the end because I got this brilliant system. So imagine my wall tent set up in there. now. My wall tent is floorless. There's no floor in it. If you've never yep. stayed in a tent that doesn't have a floor, it's the best thing in the world. You don't have to take your boots off. Um, so in my wall tent, I got the two cots in the front and I got my wood stove sitting right there. So what I do is as soon as we get back to camp, a couple hours after dark, you know, we get back, I take my two uh, tea kettles and I fill them full of water and I put them right on the wood stove. We start the stove up, we make dinner, do everything. Well, an hour later, both of those kettles are hot. I have a jet sled with us that we carry for multitude of uses. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I take that jet sled, pull it right into the wall tent. I filled my solar shower with those kettles of hot water and hang it from my wall tent. And then I take all my dirty clothes. I put them on the floor of my jet sled and then I take a shower, hot shower. It can be 20 degrees outside. seventy five 75 that tent, right next to the wood stove. I have scolding hot water coming down on me. I take a shower Then when I'm done with my shower, all of my soap for me is ran all over my clothes down there, um, and I'm washing with a scent-free soap. So it's all in the clothes, and then I actually stomp all over my clothes in the water in a jet sled and do laundry and a hot shower at the same exact time, and it is the most amazing thing you can ever... It beats any hotel... I don't care where you've ever showered before. This is the most amazing thing in the world.
1: I like that idea a lot. And your your solar shower, is that just like a big black bag, essentially, with just kind of a...
2: exactly... Yep, four gallon bag and uh, i'll tell you what you put you put two kettles of hot water and then fill the rest with cold water four gallon shower is i mean that's that's literally like a 10 minute shower i mean that's serious shower dude it's incredible and you got you can turn the water off so you soak down really good get comfortable turn the water off on a valve soap up completely turn it back on and then you uh, then when you get done uh, you just stomp all your clothes in and then you get down wring all your clothes out turn the water back on rinse your clothes like i said and then you hang your clothes uh on we got hooks all around a frame of the tent by the by the wood stove in laundry lines there you hang all your clothes on there and two hours later everything is completely fresh clean and dry for the next day i can go on a on a 10-day hunt bringing a duffel bag full of clothes and spend the whole time wearing just two outfits including socks and underwear because you just do fresh ones every day You're, you know you wash them every other day
1: yeah i'm glad i asked that question now because that that's pretty, that's a, yeah i like that a lot
0: it's definitely an interesting Tip, trick, I've never heard of anybody doing it that way, especially with a jet sled under you to catch the water to wash your clothes at the same time, basically.
2: Yeah, oh, it's, it is, I'm telling you, it is by far the best shower you will ever have, especially, you know how it is, especially, you're hunting in these hill country too, you're, you're a mile and a half in there, it's up and down three ridges, carrying all your stands, gear, everything like that, or you kill a deer and then you're packing a deer out, sometimes you're getting back at two, three in the morning, you're exhausted, your body aches, and I'm not going to lie, there's been times I've filled that jet sled full of hot water and sit in it like a hot
1: tub.
0: <laughs> 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 that. <laughs> I'm just happy hunting in the mountains out here where I get the wet wipe wipe down at the end of the day. Right. That's like right. the most refreshing thing <laughs> in the world. It's like, yes. Yeah. yeah. I I,
2: bet a hot... I found it uh, when it comes to those wet wipes, The uh, just to buy the, uh, the, buy the unscented baby wipes, you get a ton of them more and they're still unscented and they, they work just as good. And you get to carry a bunch of them for like next to nothing.
1: And the other thing too, is that, that hot shower and, and just feeling clean that, that does a whole lot for boosting morale for the next day. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah,
2: wall tent is the best way. We have we just bought a travel trailer that we got that we're going to use uh, for the winter time. We're going to kind of part time snowbird and spend some time down in the you know Georgia and Alabama areas and doing some hunting in the winter down there. But I'll be so we have a camper hunted out of hotels a few times. I have the wall tent. I'll tell you what, if I given my choice, hands down over I don't care if it was a forty five foot fifth wheel, I'll take a wall tent any day of the week when it comes to a hunting trip. Being able to walk in and out with your muddy boots on you're you know sitting around a a wood stove in your underwear when it's snowing in five degrees outside you're in there you guys are playing cards and laughing and telling jokes and it's it's just it doesn't get any better than a wall tent. you just can't beat it unless you're in now if you guys any of your listeners if they're living in like Georgia and Alabama and Florida put a floor in the thing because I'll tell you what the snakes and your, your spiders that are the size of my of a Volkswagen and all this stuff they got down there um I would have a floor in my tent there just have a zip out for where the wood stove is but um but a wall tent is a gold mine I I, I wouldn't trade it for the world two thousand bucks for a stove and a tent or you know the whole kit um and uh, and like I said you got your own you know, your own little world. You take it anywhere you want to. Just get in the car, go, pay the tags, and start hunting.
0: So out of curiosity, what's the setup and teardown time of your wall tent with your stove in it?
2: Yeah, my, mine is a, uh, mine's a 12 by 14 wall tent, which is perfect for two to three people. Uh, four, if you use my cots, I got these disco bed cots that are actually, they stack like bunk beds. So if you right. wanted to run four guys, you can in, in two persons amount of room. Um, but my I'm looking at, from the time... If I'm doing it by myself, it's about 30 minutes to set up and have it where I can, when I get back after hunting, I got to like take my sleeping bag out and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, but set up where it's ready to go about 30 to 40 minutes. Takedown is about 45 to an hour. Cause you're packing everything specifically. And you know, you're going to put it away cause you, when you, you're not going to touch it again for a couple weeks.
0: Yeah. Pretty quick and easy. Yeah. Not as bad as I was thinking in my head, I was thinking, you know like in by yourself an hour and a half setup time 3 hours tear down probably so no yeah. not bad at all compared to what i was thinking
2: yeah, and it depends on how elaborate you want to get. If you want to right. set up like a custom kitchen, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when I go, when we go to Missouri, Steve Teray from Northern Miss Longboats, he comes out there with us, and that guy sets up like the most elaborate. I mean, the guy's got like a whole village, a wall tent, a cook tent. I mean, he's got it all, and it's an amazing setup. But, yeah, his, it probably takes us about two hours, with three of us, to break his setup down. But it's, uh, it's, like I said, it's the most luxurious setup you've ever seen in your life. But you don't have to get that involved. A simple wall tent. Uh, we usually put a uh, one of those canopies, those twelve by twelve canopy covers, like you see it shows outdoor shows. We put one of those right in front of the wall tent, so it's like a huge vestibule over the front of our wall tent. Um, but that, like I said, all in all, you're talking yeah, under an hour, you know, set up and take down and not expensive to buy, and gives you the freedom to go anywhere you want, anytime you want. You know, that's the best. No renting cabins, no having to drive hundreds, you know, 20 miles to a hotel room and pay hotel fees. Plus, it's really hard to, to, you know, to skin a deer in a hotel room. You know, you can do it. We've done it in a bathtub, but it's not easy, (laughs) you know.
1: (laughs) So on that topic, I mean, on your on your out of state trips, how often would you say you, you know, basically, you know, drag the deer out or use the jet sled or whatever and, and kind of hang it up and skin it back at base camp versus how often do you bring a frame pack and just try and quarter the animal out and just haul it back that way?
2: Used to be about 50, 50, depending on where they were in my situation. But about four years ago, I think it was in Missouri, I did a comparison. Uh, so I, I killed a doe and I packed her out um, and I boned her out, cut her up, packed her out of there. And it took me like 43 minutes, you know, to, to, from the time I got done taking pictures and pulled, rolled my sleeves up to the time I had her in my frame pack loaded and, you know, hit my last hip belt buckle and was on the way out. So like 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, then, then two days later, I killed a nice eight point. I was only about a hundred yards from where I could get the truck to down this little kind of access road, uh, but it's, but it was an uphill drag. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to gut this deer, drag it. Since I'm tagged out, I'm going to gut it, drag it back to the truck, get it in the truck, bring it back to camp. Uh, Steve again in camp he had a gambrel set up with a tripod, so I'm like, I'm going to you know I'm going to skin it out and do it right there on the tables instead of being bent over. So it took me, um, it took me like 20 minutes to gut it. It took me, and I got these numbers written down somewhere. It was like 40 minutes to drag it that 100 yards. That was the most exhausting thing I ever had to do. It (laughs) was only like a 20 degree uphill, but my God, it was brutal. Um, But I got that thing to the car. Then it was hard, you know, getting it up in the back of my truck, drove it back to camp. Basically, all in all. That process took me like three and a half hours to do that buck. And then that didn't even count me having to load all the garbage in there and then take that down to a dumpster they had at one of the parking lots to throw out the you know legs and the parts. Yeah. So I since then I don't I don't I only time I ever drag deer is if I'm required to by law. Um or if I'm here in Michigan where I'm gonna hang them in my garage and leave them hang and age for a few weeks, uh, I'll use a jet sled. But otherwise on all my out of state hunts I'm boning them out and taking them out in a frame
1: pack. Do they a I lot- use an- oh, oh, sorry. Sorry to cut you off.
2: I was going to say, I use the EXO pack. So it's an internal frame and, it, you know, it's like a lot of them where they load sling. So I can actually use it like a regular pack all day. And then when I kill something, I can load sling that pack out, put all that meat in between it. I don't have to come back to get a frame pack. My actual backpack has that capability right in it.
0: Sir, so are you running the 3300 or the
2: 1800 EXO? Uh, the EXO, I'm running their K2000 pack.
0: What size is it? What's a cubic inch?
2: It's a 2,000. Actually, it's like 2,900 cubic inches, but it's a, It's called their K2000. They got a 2,000, a 3,500, oh, and a right. 5,500. Yep, and I'm running. You're thinking of probably Kuyu because um, I got the Kuyu bags, too. They're, right. they're 1,850 or – um but uh but yeah that exo is the one i use on all my out-of-state trips because i really love their titanium frame it flexes with my body so if i'm you know i can have my sticks my stand and everything on there and i can still shoot real good without that frame kind of holding me back a little bit you know
1: i saw that they are releasing a, a new k3 frame now too
2: yeah, I haven't seen it or heard the details on it yet, but you know what? I'm due for another one. So like I'm ready to buy one. I've had mine now for three years and I love it. Don't get me wrong, I'm gonna keep using it, but I, I got an itch to buy another one and I think once it's out and I see it, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to buy one myself. You know, I'll probably get it. I have the 2000 bag and I love it. I'll probably buy the, uh, the 3500 bag just to have a little bit more room in some of those if I want it, especially in the wintertime when I'm walking out, you know, those long hunts in the wintertime, I'm going out in my underwear. It's not uncommon. If you live in this area, and you see somebody with a huge pack on his back and he's in his boxers and a pair of uh, lacrosse boots heading through the woods in the winter. That's me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So you know you pack all your clothes in so having a 3500 bag would be nice i think i'm gonna buy
1: one if you i i see this a lot on like facebook pages and forums and stuff where where guys will say hey i'm looking to buy a frame pack to be able to haul my stand and sticks in and to me it always kind of seemed like that was doubling up on a frame and it wasn't very efficient because why wouldn't you just put a hip belt and shoulder straps on your stand and use that as the frame i guess when you When you're using your system like that, obviously with the intent of having the capabilities to haul a deer out, I see how that makes sense. When you're carrying your stand, then are you using the load shelf of the pack to carry your platform and sticks, or are you using the frame or are you basically attaching that bigger pack to the stand?
2: I've done it every way there was. Um, I actually, and like you said, you're right. There's no doubt about it. I used to before I went with the XO Pack. Um, what I did is I actually, on my lone wolf stand, I put shoulder straps on it, and then I put a hip belt on there, a, a Molly hip belt. Um, and, uh, and then it was nice because I could actually use it to actually pack deer out right on that tree stand, and it works pretty good. Uh, it's not quite as comfortable, but I'm not going to lie. It works great, especially for does, 50, 60-pound meat loads. But when you start getting into 80-pound loads and then you're also packing a head out, uh, that gets to be pretty brutal, but still doable. So the tree stand converted into a frame pack is a great system and works flawless. Um, then what I started doing when I got the exo is I would – Put, I would sandwich the stand and sticks between my frame and the actual pack bag. And that works great and it keeps the load in tight. And I still do that on anything that's pushing me over a mile, mile and a half in uh, because it does get that weight closer to your back uh, from the stands and the sticks. But now I find myself being lazy on a lot of them. I just, I have the, the frame and the bag connected together and then right on the two compression straps on the outside of the bag, I just throw the pack frame and bag on the ground and I lay my stands and sticks right on it and just lock those two compression straps and let the stand and sticks be as far, you know, out there at the back side of the bag and just compress everything together it, like i said it's not quite as efficient or as comfortable as having it sandwiched between but again laziness i just find myself doing that more often
1: so when you get to the base of your tree then what's your order of operations do you take the stand uh, off and then climb up with the stand and then pull the pack up or how do you handle that
2: yeah, I run uh, basically when I hit the base of that tree and I pick what tree I'm going up in. I hit that hip belt on my pack, hit the sternum strap, I set it down, I hit those two compression strap buckles to stand and sticks come apart from the bag. I set the bag there. Uh, the stand still has shoulder straps on it. So I unhook my sticks from the stand, lean them against the tree. I put the stand on my back, and then I actually use my haul line. has got two loops, one at the very end, and then about a foot up, I got another loop in there. So what I do is I put that uh, – um, the bottom loop goes through my bow. And then the loop that's a foot up, I carabiner clip my pack to that. So when I actually – and then I, I just connect that to my belt, uh, and I climb up. I hang my sticks as I'm going, and my stand's on my back. When I get where I want to be, I hang the stand, step into it, and then I pull up with that rope. I'm pulling up my backpack and my bow and everything all in one shot on one rope.
1: Okay. I can visualize that. That makes sense to me. And especially conj- running trad, that that pack and that bow together is not a miserable amount of weight to be able to pull up on a haul rope.
2: Correct. And I don't have, now again, with, uh, I have buddies that tried that same system I do that I hunt with at our compound guys, and they stopped and went back to a two rope system. And the reason for it is their sights were always getting beat up, banging in and out of that pack and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and it made them worry. So if you're a compound guy running two bowl our hull lines up so you can pull your bow up separate, nice and smooth, uh, and then you pull your pack up might be a better way to go. But for us, like I said, our bows weigh nothing, and you know you can they can bounce off that pack all day long. It's not gonna hurt nothing.
1: And then if you are successful, and let's say you're a mile deep or whatever, and you want a quarter a deer out, are you then putting your stand and sticks tightest to that frame and then trying to put the quarters on top of the stand and then lash everything to that and just trying to carry everything out at once or will you take two trips back?
2: It depends on uh, if, if, yeah, if I got more tags to burn um, and if, you know, so if I got still time to hunt, I'm going to try and carry it all out in one load rather than uh, now, if I'm only, if I'm only a half mile from the truck, I'll go drop the stands and sticks and come back and even drop my pack and just come back with the frame itself to be a little lighter. But if I'm further in and I know I don't have time to do that, I'll take it all out in one load. So I'll go track that deer with the stand and sticks on my back. Once I find that deer, I'm going to bone them out right there. I'm going to lay my pack frame on the ground, set my standing sticks on that frame, put all my meat bags on top of the sticks and stands. I'm going to lash all that together with that frame. Then I'm going to mount my pack, bag right to that and connect it together how it's supposed to be, put the whole load on my back, and I'm not going to lie, it's brutal. You start talking 100, 105 pound loads because you got, what, 20 pounds of stick, 19 pounds in a sand and stick, uh, plus your harness, your gear, and a deer. I mean, it, it's a pretty brutal load, I'm not going to lie. You better if you don't have walking sticks, if you don't have tracking poles with you, cut some before you even think about it, and pay attention to where every stump is on your way out to the butt level, because you got to take breaks. It's brutal. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Well, especially if you got any kind of terrain, too.
2: But people don't even think about it. But I'll tell you this if you want to do, I, I would love to spend a whole day just going around videotaping people trying to get off the ground with a 100 pound pack <laughs> with laying on the ground and get up. You That's know, you dang can learn all possible. kinds of Yeah, I mean, you get your face in the dirt rolling over trying it. The best way to do it is before you pick your, before you go to get in that pack. Put that pack, stand in frame, stand it up where it's about two feet away from the tree, where you can get between the pack and the tree. And you can actually get your, you know, sit down in between there, put your shoulders in there and then grab that tree and pull yourself up that tree is the best way I found to do it. But yeah. I'll tell you what, the first time I tried to pack a whole load out like that, if somebody would have been there with a video camera, it would have made every, I would have won millions of dollars from America's twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty brutal.
1: Oh yeah. You read about people talking about you know, carrying 800 pounds in a pack a lot on, on the internet. And it's like, man, when you, once you actually try it, you realize how hard it is. It's like, it, 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 does, it doesn't matter. Almost, you know, it's like you got, you can understand why there's, you know, high end packs that people pay a lot of money for once you try and carry that much weight.
2: Yeah. It makes a huge difference. And then even, but trying to get up with that pack off the ground, if you got somebody with you, it's easy because they can help yeah, lift yeah. the pack off the but trying to do it on your own, it, it's brutal. It's a nightmare. But I, uh, so a lot of the times, um, you know, once you get into like end of July, beginning of August, I start taking and hiking with uh, with anywhere, but it depends on, I start with 80 pounds and I'm up to about 120 pounds in my pack. I just walk my subdivision, usually when I'm done working, so it's midnight, one in the morning and I go do a two mile hike with it, you know, not running, but walking my, my subdivision here uh, just to get my, mainly my back, because you don't want to blow your back out on a hunting trip. So by doing that, I get myself in a little better shape and I get my back muscles acclimated to that. Um, and I'll tell you, I've done it with the old Cabela's freighter style frame packs. I've done it with my Eberly stock pack. I've done it with the axle. And I've, I've never done it with a Kuyu with a frame, but I did it inside of my Kuyu with the suspension system. The pack makes all the difference in the world. I mean, the pack can make you can, it can make an 80-pound load feel 20 pounds lighter if you have the right pack. And I'm not saying one pack's better than the other, but whatever pack it is that fits you and your build the best, for me, which is that Exo, I'll never not own an Exo pack. I mean, I may try other ones, and there's a lot of great ones, Kafaru, Kuyu, Stone, Glaciers, Great, Mystery Ranch. There's a lot of great ones, but I'll never not have an Exo around because it's the one that fits me the best, and you know it's comfortable.
0: That was the same way with me. I started with a Kuyu pack their frame pack the carbon frame pack and it i mean a 60 pound load felt like it was 100 and i was like what in the world and then i tried an xo and 60 pounds feels like it's 30 i mean it's It's nothing. just just the way it fits me yep yeah we were were just having this discussion bobby and i
1: not even a couple weeks ago i was getting another western pack and and i was debating between holding out for the new k3 from xo and or just buying one of the new mystery ranch for their guide light MX or NX or something, their newer frame for this year. And I ended up buying the Mystery Ranch, but I'd be lying if I said the price wasn't, uh, and waiting time, wasn't an an impact. I think, you know, that Mystery Ranch was like, I think 440 shipped, um, with, you know, the Memorial Day sales. And I knew that for, you know, the week of the year that I'd actually be using it, um, I wasn't sure if it was, if it'd be worth that, that extra, you know, two or 300 for the, the XO, or if I could just suck it up, whatever, you know, extra. couple pounds that pack or whatever that would feel like you know actually loaded down for that one week out of the year
2: yep yeah i think if you go with i mean if you go with stone glacier mystery ranch exo um kuyu as well too if they're again frames and stuff like that matter but uh um but any one of those the quality is just straight up awesome you can't go wrong with them they're going to do a fantastic job mystery ranch i love their packs um I, I've got to play with a few of them. I haven't bought one yet because again, I want those double compression straps. And I know they got a couple models, but I haven't had a chance to them in person. But I've been so happy with my X, so I haven't messed around too much. Um, I did just buy the Kuyu Twenty Three Hundred Venture because it's their first non-external frame, and not, it's actually like a dedicated day pack. So it's not like you're taking a Pro, Icon Pro suspension and mounting it on there. It's a, it's a dedicated built-in shoulder straps and hip belt, and I really love it for my. Michigan hunt, you know, as a regular day pack, um, but uh, but yeah, frame pack wise, you go with any one of those good. That Mystery Ranch will serve you well and will last you rest of your life, and it's a company that will stand behind it with everything. Uh, Kafaro, obviously another one. Sorry, I don't know if I mentioned that, but Kafaru too. I mean, the man air packs are incredible, Also, a lot more money, but they're pretty sweet packs. But I think the best thing is fit. You know, don't be afraid. If you buy one, buy it, check it. Make if it if it doesn't feel right, call the people whoever it is that made it, have them try and help you get it fitted. They'll actually, you can send them a video on your cell phone and they will talk to you while they're watching your video saying, hey, adjust this load lifter this way, hit this strap, do this, and they'll help you get it fitted right. Um, And then if it works great, great. If it doesn't, try another one, you know, a different, you know, try somebody else's. But those, those companies build incredible stuff.
1: Yeah, that's a good feedback and a good tip about actually contacting the manufacturer. Um, To get that fit right, because that is so critically important. One pack that I have been pretty fond of uh, for the whitetail side of things, it's kind of a day pack, is that pop-up pack from Mystery Ranch that is more of a day pack size and a little bit lighter of a frame. But then you can, you know, flip the bag away from the frame and then kind of deploy the load lifters that are just kind of, you know, I think 7,000 grade aluminum tubing, kind of like tent poles that you can pop up. That thing. That's
2: brilliant. I saw it at the traditional bull hunting expo. Oh my God. That pack was brilliant.
1: I bought an 18 liter one last year because it was all they had in stock. And then this year I ended up, uh, I bought one of the 28 liter ones and I'm giving the 18 to my fiance.
2: Yep. Yeah, you love it, and like you said, you can use it as a regular day pack without having an interference of a frame. Not a frame. Not that a frame is a major interference, but it's nice to not have to deal with it. Uh, and then when you do kill a deer, you can you can get it all set up and pack it right out of there. It's a beautiful concept,
0: especially when you're trying to duck under trees and stuff. Having that frame that may stick up, you know, three inches above your shoulders, so that makes a big difference. So being able to have that frame that's tucked in there, and then being able to pop it up when you need it.
2: Yep. My first year I packed out on my own. I actually didn't like I was, I, I quartered it out without even skinning it. So I just court you know, I, I did a gutless method on it. I quartered the whole thing out, leaving the, hide, the skin on there thinking the hide would protect it, you know? Um, and then I, but I mean, this load was massive. And anyway, I put it all in my uh, Alaskan Yukon uh, aluminum pack frame, you know, in the bag and everything. And I had legs sticking out in every direction and I had that big top metal bar and I, I, I only had to go like 600 yards, but it was the worst trip I ever had because you're right. It stuck out too wide for across my shoulders. It was up to the back of my head. I snagged on everything. I got my butt handed to me with that. This year when we were in Kansas was the first year that my buddy, John ever packed a deer out in the field. And, uh, he had that frame that same frame, the Alaskan frame, and uh, he killed that deer, and I was like, okay, and I told, he said, I want to pack it all out on my own, you do it all the time, I want this whole experience, so we stayed out there, took him a couple hours to bone it out, I showed him how to do it, well, he packed that out with that frame, and I was behind him laughing to myself, so he was snagging (laughs) on every branch, Tipping over backwards, trying to catch himself. He inventing swear words you never heard of before, and it's all <laughs> up to that frame. You know, you're right. So, so when you're looking at a frame to do this stuff, you know, you take that stuff into consideration. You know, and at Mystery Ranch, they, they, same with all these big companies that do this for a living. They, uh, they know what they're looking for. You know, they even at Eberly Stock F1 mainframe pack frame. It's a dedicated pack frame I use, but it fits inside of my back. Um, nothing sticks out beyond me. So I can literally have a, I can have a 50 pound load of deer on here and I can run through the woods. And if I fit through there, it fits through there, you know?
1: Yeah. That's really nice to have from a, a packability standpoint, especially when you're, you know, if you're hunting maybe out in Kansas might not be that bad if you have some more open terrain, but you know, that, that Michigan type of stuff or like the stuff that I hunt, it, it makes a big difference being able to have that small profile going through the woods.
2: Same with your tree stands. Do you you see these guys on uh, like on Facebook and Instagram and even the ads and stuff where they're, you know, they're out there walking through a farm field and they got like a lone wolf stand on and they got it where it's like, everything is sticking like eight feet above their head, you know, on the top of their packs and they're, they're out there and I'm thinking to myself, I couldn't get 10 feet here with that setup. You know, so I run mine the opposite. You know, I run it with the seat down, my sticks and everything are in line with the seat post and they're all everything is below my headline. Um, so that I know that if my head fits through there, I fit through there and it's all tighter than my shoulders. So I know, you know, it's almost like a deer with antlers, eventually you got to learn what you can and can't walk through with those. And if the more you can keep that stand set up, tucked in behind your body, you're much safer carrying it through there. But I see some of these guys, like I said, I'm sure it's fine if you're walking through a field head into a food plot, but you know, you, you want to, if you're going to do this stuff in, in the places we hunt. Keep that stuff tucked in as tight as you can to your back and as low profile as possible.
0: Especially with climbers. You see like the cables and the hoops that go <laughs> yeah. way above people's <laughs> heads. <laughs> and I remember when I started using those, every, every like stick that was broken off, it seemed like I hooked on that thing. And so you're like pulling trying to figure out, what am I hung on? And then yeah. you got to walk back five steps just to get yourself <laughs> unhooked only to do it all over again. When you f- walk five steps forward, you're like, God, what is the deal?
2: Yeah, we were in Kansas this year. And again, we're hunting public land out there. And there were these guys from Texas that were hunting the same area. We had seen him a couple mornings there. Um, and well, one morning we were there at the same time, I'm stringing my bow, getting everything ready. And he takes off walking out of there um, and we're heading up the same trail. I know where he's going, so he's not gonna interfere with me, but we got to go a couple hundred yards the same way before we before I break off and I'm walking as I'm walking. I see his headlight, like it looked like he was in a fight with a bear. His headlights just flying every direction. And I get up to him. I'm like, what is going on? And he is completely t- hung up. His, uh, that top bar of that, that rubber strap on his climbing stand was hooked on a branch, and he couldn't get off of it with the strap. You <laughs> know he was wearing it on his back, but he was hung. I'm like, just hold still for a second. But he was completely hung up on it, just twisted in there and couldn't move.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the big thing I always see too, people is people, when they take their climbing sticks and they'll stack them vertically. You know, so it's like if you're, if you're laying the stand on the ground, the sticks would stack up. And it's like, man, that, that works really well if you're walking through like cattails or if you're trying to stay in line with something. And if you don't have to duck, but as soon as you got to duck or go under a deadfall or something, man, you just get closed line by that stick. You, you think you duck low enough and then you just get caught and thrown right back on your
2: butt. Yeah. Yep, like mine, I carry, mine are running vertical down to seat posts, but I actually let mine go way down low, like my top, I, I put my sticks upside down, so my, my, yep. you know, on a lone wolf, she got the step that sticks up straight, yep. I actually spin mine so that that step, is, all my, my top of my sticks are pointing down, and that top V bracket of that, uh, that stick is literally right about where my shoulders meet my neck as far as height, and those sticks stick down, Um, you know, they're they're between my butt and my knees down there at the very bottom. But again, down there, it's safe. I don't, if they were up any higher, I'd snag them on stuff. But by keeping them low like that, the only thing I got to pay attention to them too, is if I'm trying to, you know, high step over, um, over a deadfall where it's like, you know, crotch high. And then I might have to lean forward to kick that swing that up and over around it. But yeah, I don't, you can't have anything sticking up too high, but I've seen those guys or they stack them straight out with five or six sticks on them. And they're uh, like you said, they just keep angling up and up and up. And next thing you know, you know two feet beyond their head and a foot above it you know that's
1: not good yep well i always like to too just take the the stack of sticks and just kind of lay them flat versus just stacking them up that that seemed to always work all right too if you especially if you had you know a soft fleece pack or or some extra you know clothes to kind of bungee with an x pattern over the top then i think that stuff would usually stay pretty tight and not make any noise
2: yeah, I don't think I've seen anybody that's done as much experiment with that stuff as you have. I watched, you know, once, you know, I watched you climb a, t- a tree with one stick, you know, all the way up there. And the things that you've done. So you've definitely done some experimenting with it. For me, I found, I actually use swim noodles for mine. What I do is I lay that stand on the ground, and then I, I took a swim noodle and I notched it. I got videos out there on it, but I put a notch in it so it it's just right on my seat post. And I put another swim noodle on my seat, and I just stack all my sticks in a row. One, two, three, right there on it. And I put a, a rubber bungee cord across the man, and it holds it perfect. And it creates a nice, flat profile, low profile, and it works great. It doesn't make a sound. You know, sweet, simple, and easy. And I run three sticks. I only run an aider on the bottom one. I think you're only running an aider on one now too. I know you experimented with putting them on all, but aren't you just running an aider on one stick?
1: Usually what I do now is, is either one of two things: a, a movable aider that I can just move up, and I can use it then on all of my sticks or none of my sticks, yep. just depending on the situation. If I don't need it, I won't use it. Um, and if I want to use it, it's there. I can use it on all of them, and that I don't don't have an aider, you know, blowing around in the wind. You can get aiders that cinch onto themselves so that, you know, kind of hold tight to your boot and you're not fishing around to try and find the aider on the way down in the dark. Um, what I might do this year is, uh, I might, might splice some amp steel aiders onto the sticks, um, with my double steps on the sticks that I made, just kind of splicing on one side of the bottom and then just kind of making a big U hanging loop and then splicing into the, um, the other side of the stick so that it's automatically kind of held open. Um, just because I'll probably be doing some more hunting with, uh, my fiance this this coming fall and I don't want to make it overly complicated for her. I'm uh, just kind of keep it, you know, simple if we're climbing the same tree.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Those sticks you made are pretty amazing. That's, that's pretty cool how you built those. I watched that whole process, <laughs> you know, cutting out those pieces and setting it up pretty incredible stuff.
1: Yeah. I, I still I've, out of all the climbing methods I I've tried, I still usually keep coming back to those as my, as my uh, kind of primary system. And they're still, Definitely opportunities and times when I'll reach for something else based on the situation. But if I had to pick a go-to to only hunt with for the, you know, the rest of my life, it would probably be that, that type of system. I like the double steps. I like two per stick. It seems like that good balance between not having a stick that's too long, but still having a stick spacing that is not overly cramping. And of course I'm a little bit taller than you are too. I'm about six foot tall, so I can use a little bit bigger spacing. The only downside is they, they do stick out a little bit more because there's no, um, they're fixed. You can't fold those steps like you could with like a lone wolf stick. Um, right. So that's the only downside to them. But it seems like if you can keep them, you know, bungeed or strapped onto the pack low enough, and you know, kind of rig sideways as such, that your your profile is still within your profile. It doesn't seem like it hangs up too terribly bad. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's a beautiful system. Now, Bobby, you run the. Uh, you're all saddle hundred percent of the time
2: now, right?
0: Yep. I have been for oh a long time. Two thousand and. Nine, maybe 10, somewhere in there.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's uh, you know, I, I've I had a saddle that I had made for me. My buddy, he builds them himself. Uh, pretty great system. Um, but now with you guys, you guys all got all the platforms and all these tech. You know, I mean, there's a lot of advancements that come into them. They've come a long way. I haven't been in one since, but I'll tell you what, some of these like these Kestrels and these platforms and these uh, arrow hunter. I don't know what's what about them too much anymore. But I'll tell you, some of these guys are bringing them to me. Uh, you know, they are showing me, and I'll tell you, man, there's there's some pretty sweet systems, some major advantages to them but i'll bet when it comes to moving through the woods it's pretty uh pretty simple to get through there with a harness versus stand.
0: yeah the biggest yeah. obstacles bob wire fences and briar patches because they like to get a hold of the leg straps yeah
2: you that's a to, good point
0: yeah. try to weave through a bob wire fence or something and they grab a hold of the leg straps pretty quick so
1: yeah but you got that issue if you're climbing with a normal tree stand and a rock harness or a, a fall S- restraint harness anyway
0: yeah well, it's, yeah yeah
2: the pack because it won't fit between the wires. You know, you got to take your whole pack off, swing it through there with the stand. You know, yeah, yep, hmm. yep. Pretty, I'll, I'll tell you though that uh, that saddle thing grabs my attention more and more and more. I <laughs> uh, see guys using it. <laughs> it might be something I'm gonna have to play with a little bit here. I mean, I'm pretty dead set in my way. I got my I got it down to a system that really works good for me. Takes me about four four and a half minutes to be up the tree ready to go. But um, I'm this. I'm I, I wouldn't. going to say there's a 50% chance that I might have one of these saddles before the season rolls around. I'm not making promises, but they, they look pretty impressive.
0: And as long as you have a system that works for you, that's the biggest thing, is you have to know your system in and out, know your stick spacing, everything. And as long as you're good with it, that's, that's the biggest thing, is what works best for you, because that's ultimately what's going to keep you the safest.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like, I I love the lineman belts. You know, I, I make my own. You I see you did a nice mod on yours too, Jared. You got that whole, you switched uh, from the Ropeman 1 to the Ropeman 2 on yours and went to a smaller diameter rope and did some mods to it. I like that setup you got for that lineman belt.
1: Yeah, I got a few of them running now. Um, I actually went back to the Samson Predator, which is a 7 inch line. Number one, just because I, I like not from, like, different. a structural standpoint, but I, I liked the, the Predator rope a little bit more than that 8mm stuff I was using, both mm-hmm. from the, the inconspicuous coloration of it as opposed to that kind of bright green on that other rope. Because um, the Rope Man 2, the, the teeth on the camera are a little bit different. And it yeah, tastes... they're a
2: lot more aggressive. More yeah. Like teeth. Yeah, yeah, so if
1: you don't have a rope sheath that's nice and tightly woven, it tends to make it fuzzy a little bit easier than it does with the Rope band 1. So that Rope Man one, it seems like you can put that on just about any of those, you know, seven sixteenth inch diameter ropes and it works just fine. But the Rope Man two, it was like you had to you had to really get the right kind of rope and there wasn't as many options, as it didn't seem like, and of the options I, I tried to find one that was as inconspicuous of a color and that I liked as much as the Predator. Um and granted that Lyman's rope still works fine, I still have that thing and I still have it set up on one of my saddles. But I think my go to is probably the the Predator with the Rope Man One now even though it's a little bit heavier and a little bit bulkier.
2: Yep. That's, I've, I've never used the Rope Man 2. I've looked at it, and the teeth design kind of scared me away, thinking that you're going to shred ropes like crazy. Um, but uh, that Rope Man 1, like I said, I that's, you know, I, I love it. Every time I'm a stand, it's just, you know, lineman belt, as I'm sure you guys are too. Lineman belt, safety, the whole way up, the way down, get to come home, see your family. Every year I hear horror stories. Somebody's telling me about somebody who's paralyzed or, heaven forbid, dead. You know, from from not being safe when they're going up and down the trees.
1: Yeah, well, I, I feel like I got the idea for the rope man. I think it was from your video that you posted, however many years ago, on making lemons yep. belts. I think that's where I first saw that idea.
2: Yep. It's a great system, no, but yeah, like I said, I saw you do some mods to it, change it around. I saw, you know, I like I said, I I, oh, I saw all your videos, you know, where you took the rock climbing harness and we're modifying it so you could put the lineman belt loops on it, and yep. I mean, I love it. Like I said, you nobody nobody tinkers and plays with stuff more than you do. I love it.
0: <laughs> that is a true statement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you should see my garage right now. It's uh, it's it's always a mess. No, my biggest <laughs> problem is I start I start working on new things before I complete my old things. And before I clean up my old messes, so unless I, I usually have to, I had to take a, a day just like every other week and just reorganize
0: and clean so I can start fresh again.
1: It's like when I
0: look <laughs> yeah. at my phone and I've got a message from Garrett, the first thing that goes to my head is like, okay, what is this going to be? And then you open it because you never know what it's going to be. It's like, what do you think of this idea? And it's like out of left field, it's like, how did you even come up with this idea and what made you think of this <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. yeah yeah i don't doubt it like i said you watch the videos pop up and it's like oh here we go again i love it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's yeah. exactly right mm-hmm.
1: yeah i'm 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 pretty excited for this year though. i think i've my system for saddles i mean my my stand system has been pretty set for a while but i have hunted more and more with saddles and i feel like this year that the system that i have is is really a system that I'm very comfortable with, you know, over the last two years of the saddle, I was still through that very heavy experimentation phase with various climbing methods and, and whatnot. And I feel like I've, I've found what I like and what I don't like, and now I'm just going to hunt with what I like.
2: Yep. Yep, I got a couple of places where they would definitely come in handy. Because I mean, there's some because you can use the saddles on on super skinny trees, you know, mm. that you shouldn't even be in. And I mean, I'm in those trees. I, I got a couple of spots where I'm not joking, where I'm I'm basically ratchet strapping, you know, three saplings together to kind of hold my stand. And then you feel like you're basically on top of a pole vault pole, you know, if the wind <laughs> blows, you you know. And uh, so I mean, those kind of places there. That I think. Not only would the saddle benefit you because it's easier on to be able to be in those littler trees, but also from the fact that when you're on it, you look like a branch on a tree. You're taking that kind of an angle, the direction your body is, the shape, you know it looks better than standing there, floating, hovering out on the end of a tree stand, straight, completely vertical. You know, so I, again, I, I don't know, but there there's definitely some places I could play with a saddle that I think would work out pretty good because I do. I mean, there's I got a couple spots that i'm not joking i'm in that tree stand i'm only five feet off the ground you know i mean th- that platform height is, is five feet off the ground because the tree you know i mean and even then even on my lone wolf i'm not touching any of the teeth i mean it's strictly in the middle i mean this thing's about the diameter of my arrows <laughs> you know what i'm <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: i like them from a from a trad bow standpoint is that you get that bow out away from the tree and away from the platform more than like on a tree stand especially if you have those close shots you know you're fighting your bottom limb depending on the length of your bow with your platform or your seat whereas with a saddle you can get that bow out and away from your your tree your platform your you know anything basically And that's really what i like about it from a trad bow aspect
2: yep see i can't my bow pretty good people actually tell me i can't it too much but i'm usually running about you know i'm somewhere 40 45 percent angle on
0: my bow you know when it's can smokes when i'm shooting what's that I said holy smokes that's a long ways.
2: Yeah, I mean I got a can and pretty good. I'm you know I'm halfway between vertical and horizontal but I um, it really helps me a lot in a tree stands cuz I mean then that, that lower limb is off to the side somewhere. Yeah. It's never right you know in the way of me. Um, So it works really good for that. And especially, again, I'm a short guy. Maybe that's why I do it. It's because when I'm shooting on the ground, when I'm on my knees, I got like, you know, I, I don't have enough room. I have to tilt it sideways. You know, I'm not tall enough. Yeah. But I, I definitely, you know, so I, I never had a problem with that. But um, yeah, like I said, I, I think that's a good point. And you can also, um, you get a lot of, you can really move around a tree. You know, my buddy John, he took, before he was using like these Predator platforms, I don't think it's that one, but whatever one it is he uses, he had a, uh, uh, he took these old Ameristep plastic steps So we have a bu- I think I still got a couple dozen of these things laying around here. But the strap on. Hey, black- yeah, sell, sell them, <laughs> them to me
0: if you don't want them. I'll take it. Yeah,
2: Call Dibs yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah, they're in high demand. I sold. I had like ten sets, ten dozen, and I sold some a couple years ago. And I had like two hundred twenty-five bucks per oh. per dozen of them. I was like, oh my god, you know.
1: I could have got um, more than that. And that
2: was on eBay, you know. So <laughs> I put them on for like, you know, I put them on for like fifty bucks, and they got bidded all the way up to that. Um, but yeah, but he took those and he put like six of them on one, one strap and he put them on there so he could move all the way around the tree with that saddle. Pretty sweet setup.
0: Yeah. That's my preferred way is, you know, str- steps on a strap so that I can walk 360 degrees compared to a, a platform style.
2: Yeah. That's what he did. Now, right now he's got, uh, um, he's running, well he took a seat off of a lone wolf you know they got that seat kit almost like you did with the back in the um you know the tree saddle days he did the same concept flipped it upside down he's got it actually he's got the seat on there and then on the strap he has three more steps so he's got the platform when he wants it and he's got the steps around it it's a pretty sweet system works pretty good
1: yeah, yeah. it's
0: amazing how much the saddle industry is growing and the saddle accessories is growing i mean it's I think I talked to some guys from like bowhunting.com the other day, and that's one of the top two areas that's growing the most in the hunting industry.
2: Yeah, I don't doubt it. Everybody you see today, they got a new settle. <laughs> and it's nice because it used to be, I mean, Twenty years ago, there was tree saddle and uh, the ambush saddle. I think were the only two things you had. Then you had a ten year period where there was nothing, and you were making your own. And then you had is it, it what's arrow hunter? Is that the actual name of the company, or was it, is that one of their models? And it was a different.
0: Well, it started out. It was the original model, and then they branched it to make it a second company called Arrow Hunter.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because something was tribe, wasn't it? Something tribe or something new tribe. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's the one. Yeah. So, yep. But um, but yeah, they're they're definitely making a, a major comeback. I'm glad people are enjoying them, giving different options out there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Now they got there's new tribe, there's tethered. I saw an ad that uh, trophy line is making a comeback.
0: Trophy line's back. Yep.
1: Who else am I missing? That's that's out. There's that Canadian company Arc.
0: Yeah, and then there's the JX3 hybrid. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Of course.
0: So, I mean, you're looking actually, at those, have been, one, I think. yep, yeah, that's a unique yeah. system in itself. Yeah. So you're looking at those and I think there's actually two more that's possibly coming out. So, you know, obviously it's growing, it's a huge market, you know, they're going to follow the money. If the money's in saddle hunting, companies are going to saddle hunting. It's that simple. Right.
2: Yep. Yeah. Market drives it all.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: When you, what's your uh, trad bow length? I'm curious that you shoot out of a stand
2: 64 inch um... Mine's is a 64 inch classic hill style bow and i also you know i I've, I've shot everything from 58 inch recurves all the way up to 60 66 inch long bows if it's a mild rd bow like my guns and stuff like that i like a 60 inch cuz i can i only draw 25 and a half to 26 inches so i can get away with a lot shorter bow but i like a 60 inch for those and if it's a straight limb uh, bow like i'm shooting now 64 is about perfect 64 66 um, you know, I don't shoot any of the ultra hybrid bows too much. You know, I I just they got a lot of brace height for my short draw, so I'm I kinda stick with the the classic uh you know, long
1: bow style. Gotcha. You shooting wood arrows or carbons?
2: I shoot carbons now. I I shot wood arrows for about ten years, cedars and firs and maples, Um, and they're a great thing. The only downside to them is they take a lot longer to make, and I just find myself just not having a time anymore for them. Once we actually, I haven't shot wood since we had kids. Once we had kids, it was like okay, uh, just not enough time to do it. So I went to carbon, you know. And I like carbon because I can really build them my way. I'm I'm a huge high FOC guy. Um, you know, I'm shooting 30% FOC. I can tailor those arrows to what I want. I can change broadheads and you know, with different weight adapters, and I can really make them the way I want them to be with carbon. And I love the durability of them. If I'm out stump, which I stump shoot a lot, and uh, those arrows never break. You know, whereas wood arrows, you know, you can build them pretty tough, but it costs money and time, and it's a lot harder. Yeah,
0: and especially if you're tinkering with spine. You know, if you're using glue-ons, it's so yeah. much harder with glue-ons. Tinker with spine. I mean, how easy it is it to unscrew a field point and screw another one in?
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of advantage to it. Now, I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of romance and a lot of heart and a lot of, you know, I mean, a wood arrow is is a beautiful thing. And uh there's nothing quieter. You'll never shoot an arrow that will fly more quiet than a wood arrow um because of the density of the shaft, um, things like that. But they are dead quiet. They are butter smooth. Uh, they hit like a brick tank. You know, I, everything about them is great, except for the fact that they take a long time to make. Now, if you get somebody like, uh, you know, Addictive Archery or, you know, any of those guys that you get these guys to build them for you then it's uh then you're set and it's it's a fantastic way to go but if you're making your own like i said there's just a lot more steps involved staining them sealing them you know it's just more work and honestly i could slap together i don't even do cap dips anymore i mean i put a cap wrap on them slap some feathers on them and i put a couple rings on there with a sharpie marker and call it good you know
1: did you ever try cane or uh, bamboo with a natural taper
2: I have never, never shot any of those. I, I, I did have, uh, some, not barrel taper, but where they were, uh, you know, edge taper. So they went from the, uh, uh, you know, 11 sixteenths down to the, uh, um, what are they, uh, or they went from 23 64s down to, uh, 11 sixteenths or well, I don't remember even the setting or the sizes, but they were they, – they tapered. They were heavier in the front and tapered in the back, uh, and they flew incredible. They were great, but, again, I don't remember much about them. That was, you know, 17 years ago that I shot those, so I don't know much about them anymore.
0: Gotcha. What were you going to say, Bobby? I can remember, like, going to O'Jam, the Oklahoma self-bow jamboree, and having to spend, like, the three weeks prior to that to build arrows just to go to that to shoot the 3D shoot and all the, like – fun shoots for that. And that's what the one thing I hated the most was happened to, you had to buy arrows, wait for them to come in. You'd spend weeks just to build two dozen wooden arrows basically.
2: Yeah. And it used to be back then, like you'd order the shafts and stuff and you would get them in, uh, you you'd buy a hundred shafts to get 60 of them that were good. Um, yep. you know, and it, the other ones became tomato steaks in the garden and things <laughs> like that, you know, literally. But I mean, I mean today there's, there's some incredible, arrow builders out there they really got this dialed in and you get a hold of some of those guys man especially on the west coast they're they're building phenomenal wood arrows you know there's no doubt about it but for me i'm just i, I love the carbon aspect i love the simplicity the durability and the functionality that i get to be able to make them my way and tailor them like i want you know
1: mm-hmm. yeah definitely it's there's definitely a lot of a lot of freedom and ability that you have when working with that type of system do you have any kind of particular favorite broadheads that you've been shooting, or do you just kind of have a more of a style that you prefer?
2: I am probably the most anal broadhead guy you will ever meet in your life. I uh, I shoot one broadhead. I've been shooting it. Now, I've tried a few other ones over the years, but I've been shooting this one for twenty years, uh, and I refuse to go to anything else. Even to the point that as soon as they went out of business, uh, and they weren't being made, they went out of business twice. Once they went out of business a few years ago, and then they were picked up, and I knew they were getting picked up by another company, so I wasn't really worried. Then the company that picked them up went out of business, and I made, I spent four days on the phone calling every single archery shop in the entire country, buying every single one of them there is, and I think I got 250 of them now. <laughs> uh, but that's the Magnus One broadhead, the Magnus One one and a half inch wide, hundred. I don't care if it's one thirty five, one fifty, or one sixty grain, because I can change that with my steel insert adapters to get the weight even. But that one and a half inch wide Magnus uh, One, called the Magnus One broadhead, it sharpens like a dream. It holds an edge really, really well. I love the wide cutting diameter. I love the the triple layer tip. I love I love everything about that broadhead, and I've killed so many animals with it. I put my own, uh, um, tonneau tip on the tip of it, get rid of the needle point and put a tonneau tip on it. And, uh, just my favorite hat I've ever shot. I straight up love it. Yep. I can't wait until somebody makes it again. Uh, but like I said, till then I got about 250 of them in last year. Uh, I lost a couple of them. One that went through a deer that I never found and a couple of them that were on a miss. I actually drove like six hours or four hours one way, so eight-hour trip to go retrieve those broadheads. <laughs> after the <snow> <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so those, that's my favorite one. There's a lot of great heads out there. But um, now if I was shooting, if I'm going after... Uh, you know, if I was going after something thicker skinned or bigger or something, I'd probably go to like some of the three to ones, like the tough heads are amazing, the grizzly heads, things like that. But for white tail, black bear, uh, elk, any, anything that I have hunted or I'm going to hunt, you know, most of that kind of stuff that, you know, one and a half, I want the wider blood trail. I want that harder hit. Most of my arrows are blowing right through anyway. They're not even, you know, they're not even slowing down when they're going. And I'm only shooting... Uh, What do I I shoot 57 pounds at 26 inches? So it's not like I'm shooting a lot, but those arrows are 30% FOC, they're 710 grains, and uh, they are tuned very well. And they're just like I said, they're you know, so I have enough energy and it's doing enough damage. Why not shoot the widest head I can and get as much blood trail as I can? Mm -hmm. And I don't like three blades because they don't fit my quiver very well, and I'm too lazy to sharpen three blades. Two blades is so much easier to sharpen.
1: Well, you know, what actually works really well for sharpening three blades is, you know, how they have those, um, those buffer wheels. You can get, you can get the paper wheels, uh, that are, you know, like an inch and a half, two inches wide. And then you can just lay, you know, just like you would sharpen those on flat stone, just lay that head real lightly on that uh, paper wheel with a little of that white rogue. And that really hones those, those three blades. That's the easiest, quickest way that I've found to be able to get a hone on those three blade heads. But it otherwise it could take back. a while yeah
2: it doesn't have the back of the blades the back edge when you're doing it i know buffer wheel
1: no not because you just what i would do is basically you know do the first portion of it if it's if it needs some work do the first portion of it on stones and then okay basically with that buffer wheel you're just you're laying it flat so that you have basically two edges like the edge of two blades just like you were to lay the thing flat on the surface as if you were to slide it to sharpen on a flat um, like a diamond uh, block. Same yeah. type of deal you just I would start you know kind of toward the back of the broadhead and just real light pressure almost just like the weight of the broadhead sitting on top of that wheel spinning away from you and then just slowly draw back towards me and then rotate that head 120 degrees do the same thing on that edge so you just sharpen of those edges at a time. And then just keep doing that over and over and over again. And and eventually you get that nice kind of mirror finish on those. um, If if it has anything
0: more than two blades, you're only complicating the problem. (laughs) It's that simple.
2: Yeah. Because I I mean, but that's a great way. So you're doing almost like, because I use a belt sander to set all my angles on mine. You know, I just use them right on the belt sander. I run that and set that hard. I I like to hit them with a, a real aggressive blade a real aggressive belt right off the bat something like a a 240 grit or 120 grit and i set that angle and then yeah but so you're doing the same thing you're just running it straight up the wheel and sharpen two blades at once with a three blade that's that's pretty smart because trying to sharpen a three blade with a file or with a stone or anything is is an exhausting task.
1: yeah and when i do two blades i like depending on the broadhead either just a a round wheel which i I use that because i have it i don't have a a good bench grinding setup but the the wheels seem to work all right if you have a steady hand or if you have it fixtured but it's really easy to screw them up on a, a wheel setup too
2: yeah Yep, and you get that hollow ground. You got to be careful of that hollow ground yep. on there. You know, if you're, you know, you catch it in the wrong part of that, you start getting taking away meat, and you get that real fragile kind of tip on there. Um, but I'll tell you, if you ever want a belt sander set up, Harbor Freight, they got a belt sander for like 39 bucks. It's a one by 30. Um, and that thing, is the belts are dirt cheap and the thing is incredible. I've had one now for about six or seven years. I've done videos on it that you can see on there. And I'll tell you what, you know, you get a, you buy one of the variety pack belt things for like 10 bucks, and this thing will last you for three straight years. You don't have to buy any belts or nothing. And I sharpen everything from my lawnmower blades to my kitchen knives to my hunting knives, my broadheads, everything on there. And you can do, you know, I I mean, my broadheads, I'm pretty anal, so I'm finishing them by hand and stropping them by hand rather than on there. But uh, like my kitchen knives, I can do all 10 of our kitchen knives in about 12 minutes and have them shaved and sharp. My wife loves it because now I actually take the time to sharpen the kitchen knives.
1: Is that that little green machine with the the belt vert? I do have one of those, actually. I I haven't been using it for that, though. It's just sitting in my garage collecting dust. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, buy some. Like I said, it'll sharpen knives. Incredible. Yeah,
1: I'll have to start using that. Well, I have one of those kind of onion sharpeners, too. I got too many things to use is the problem. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: those cannon onions are pretty good too that's that works sharp right or yeah works yep. Pro or- yep. uh, yeah same exact concept of how i'm using that you know that uh harbor freight same exact thing if you already got that just use that yeah works great i think the belts are just more money well
1: that gives you yeah, yeah, i the, think they- the opposite of that hollow grind too is that the concave or convex concave right on that grind. Yeah, it's
2: like, yeah you're getting that con yeah that con concave or con, actually i think it's convex, convex. convex. Concave in, yeah concave would be a hollow grind okay convex yeah. What you're wanting because that's going to be the strong one, but yeah, you're right. On that, uh, you know, if and the same with that green belt sander, if I run it against a flat bar behind there, it's a flat grind. If I run it on where there's no space. support behind a belt, it creates
0: convex. Yep,
1: yep, that makes sense. All sorts of useful information today that I'm learning.
0: <laughs> you're learning you have all
1: kinds of great tools sitting in the garage,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you're just too busy with all the other projects. <laughs> yeah.
1: No kidding. Why don't you tell us real quick about the uh, the courses that you have, you know, kind of put up and started as a supplement to the DVDs and stuff you've made in the past.
2: Yeah, the DVDs went over really good. Uh, the downside to the DVDs, I made two scouting DVDs. Uh, each of them was, you know, I tried to put everything into them. So each one is like literally over four hours long. So I made the first one. And then a year and a half later, I made the second one. So there was eight total hours between the two of them and they were great. But then you're, as soon as you put it out, you're literally like, oh, I should have put this in there. I want to, well, I should talk about this and, and you can't. And then it's like, so I decided, um, you know, again, I told you earlier, getting into all this e-commerce and all this selling on Amazon and all these things I'm doing and stuff like that. And I'm learning a lot. Well, I learned how to, I thought, hey, I can make a course. The, the beauty of it is, is it never ends. You know, I can add to it anytime I want. So you buy it once and then you constantly get all the new information. Uh, so I started doing it and I, I did, a, made a whole bunch of video content and I did a bunch of stuff and I actually found a company and I actually created a course and I'm a bow hunting whitetails course. And I put all this info in it. It started at about, it was like seven hours long. Now I want to say it's just like 12 hours to get through it. Um, as a matter of fact, I got a lot more content going. I'm adding content almost weekly to it, but it's a never ending, updating, always evolving course on scouting and hunting and it covers everything from cyber scouting to in the field details and how to hunt them and uh, different hunting scenarios and setups and uh, all the rules of how to hunt deer like the things we've been talking about earlier about how to stay closer to bedding and why how what food sources and when but it's basically it's a all-inclusive everything right there in one place for you um, but the beauty of doing it as a course is I'm constantly updating it and you get all that stuff included and you can access it from your phone, from your computer, from your laptop. You could be sitting in your tree stand getting stumped and haven't seen deer all morning and pull this course up and watch whatever chapter on whatever time of year it is. And if you're oh, you know, better rut tactics for hot days and you can look at that chapter and see some of the things that I tell you to do, go, oh, yeah, you know what? I can find this. Look at your map or your spot right there and go, that's where I got to go, you know, right there while you're in the field. So it's just kind of the evolution of learning how to ear hunt, where the DVDs were great, but once they were out, that's all you got. And there was anything else had to be added later. It came out a year later. It was just a bigger headache. So this is a instantaneous, updated, always evolving way to learn this stuff that's incredible. And actually the scouting videos, uh, both of those scouting right, right now that course I got it, it it's, it's 75 bucks which is actually half price because it's you know by hunting season it's going to go back to the, it'll go up to the 150 but uh, actually I'm guessing I'm probably about four to six weeks out both of my scouting DVDs I'm in process of breaking them apart right now and, and talking with the course host about uh, imp- improving my limit sizes so that I can add all of that eight other, more hours of that in there um, and so I don't have to make another course but I'm trying to fit those Scouting DVDs in a few weeks will actually be included in that actual course. So before, where you would pay fifty bucks to get those DVDs, now seven then seventy five bucks for the course. Pretty soon, all of that stuff will be all under that course. So it just never stops evolving. Just more and more content. And uh, according to the the company that I use to provide the host, I. I can is because of the moderation rate I'm doing, I will be able to never outgrow that course on there. And they say if I ever do, if this thing gets to be thirty hours long and too big, I actually they have plans in process where I can actually set up another course that would become free as a after a prerequisite of the first one. So all the time, never ending. So it's just a beautiful
1: system. And is that basically if, if a person opts into that program and pays the seventy five or one fifty, depending on the time of year? They'll always have access or is that like a subscription type type deal?
2: Nope, always access. One time buy, you have it forever. Yep. And uh, I have all the content backed up. So if something were to ever happen and that company were to go away or something were to happen, I could always transfer it right over to another one including cause you're buying it through PayPal and, it, and there's ways to be able to get it like through credit cards and stuff too. I did not purposely turn those on because I want you to come through PayPal because PayPal will allow me, they send me an email of every single person that's in that course. So I know everybody's in there. I have their contact information, which is nice. So if something ever did go down, down and I had to transfer over somewhere else, I can have PayPal and I can say, look, no, they're already in, they've already paid. So it's protected hundred percent all the way around on everything. And it is basically a lifelong, always available membership that will always be there. And for me, I don't have to nickel and dime you with a new DVD every year that once I put it out, I'm pissed because I didn't add more information to it to begin with. Now this is ever-evolving. Every week or every 10 days, I'm putting new videos on there, new content, and you're getting it all the time. The last chapter in that cor- in that Bull hunting whitetails course says on it is called New Content Update Chapter. So if you haven't been there in a week or two, when you log in, you just go to that chapter and it'll say, uh, like, it'll say 52618 new content added. You click on that one and it pulls up the list and it says, uh, video, uh, you know, barrier to entry example number two added to chapter 23. You know, so it tells you exactly what new stuff was added and when, and you get to see all of this. So it's, like I said, it's almost like a, it's, it's an evolving, never ending school class that's right there for you. Pretty, nothing else like it exists in the hunting world. And I'm so proud to, that I was able to do it, which I never would have known how to if it wasn't for all this other training and e commerce crap that I've been getting into trying to someday maybe live life on my laptop from an RV and hunt the world. And, not have to, you know, <laughs> right. so it, it seemed really good in the real world, but it's panning out to be much harder than anticipated. But it taught me a lot of skills that I, I converted over to this. And I'm, I'm really loving the direction it's going.
1: No, I think it's a really great idea. And I like the platform of being able to have that, you know, kind of never, end, never ending you know, constant fresh information that people can use. And it's a good resource. You know, it's like, there's a lot of good free content. There's also a mixture of, you know, bad free content. And I usually spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars a year on, you know, courses or apps or, or things where, or books that I feel like I can get useful information from. And if information is one of those things, that's hard to value. It's like, if you have the desire to learn, I feel like it's always a, a good investment to throw some some money at, at something like that versus just trying to you know you can cut so much of a learning curve off that I, a lot of, I feel like a lot of times compared to the cost of gas compared to the cost of tags it's worth it to get that information
0: and even yeah. just kind of looking at the you know you're willing to put this much time work and effort into developing this course content shows that there's that much knowledge there that people want to pay for it to get whereas like Garrett said There's plenty of free knowledge. Some of it's really good and some of it's really bad. And the fact that you've went out and went through all of this to set up this platform to have this course says a lot about the course in general.
2: Plus, there's a benefit, too, that is you guys know both of you guys have YouTube channels out there. You got to... And admit that there's a lot of people that you run into in that world that you don't really want them to even have your information they're upsetting sometimes you know there there there's some people out there there's there you get haters but then you also just get people that just bug you with some of that stuff well the advantage to this is this is you know these are some of the some of the stuff that's in this set them up in these spots and explain to them why but there's some things about hunting that you're you're the way you do something you just don't want to tell everybody well by putting it in this core, are die hard they care they're 100 percent involved in this it in to 25 people that are weekend warriors in spots if i see somebody in a spot that i'm at here it's because i know as i If this guy's set up right and he's in the right spot, I'm leaving him alone and giving him his distance because he's doing it right. Um, Those are the people that you want to have this information, people that are diehard. I don't expect everybody to buy this course. I don't care how many do, but I know that when they do – and it's priced that way on purpose, because I want it to be people that are serious. You know, I don't want to, again, I don't want a 1,000 people to have this and them be in my places all the time. I'd rather have it be, you know, 200 people that are diehard and, uh, you know, that are going to understand and appreciate it. And so far, it's been over very, it's went over very well. They're, the people that are in there, they're they're raving about it. They're telling me all the great things. And then they're going out now and they're scouting and they're getting ready. They're contacting me, sending me maps and stuff, telling me what they're going to do I'm I'm looking at it and I can see that they're learning exactly what I'm talking about and they're in the right places um, or sometimes they might need a little advice on something it's just this amazing whole little network of stuff that's again things that you would tell your friends that you don't normally just give out to everybody that's the advantage to it
1: yeah I think it's I think it's great that it's available and there's a resource for sure and like you made a good point you know about if, if people are die hard and this gives them kind of that separation that allows allows them to even separate themselves from the other people who would be getting the free content otherwise, um, that, that makes it even more advantageous to them.
2: Yeah. We talked earlier about how the best way to do it is to find a place unpressured, which means where nobody else is at. If you give out those places all the time, give that information available for free where everybody can see it. For I mean, we can, I obviously – I mean, I got hundreds of videos and not like you guys, I got, you know, I got like 350 podcasts out there. They're giving, I'm giving away a ton of free information, but some of those things, like I said, you'd rather keep them to yourself. That way they're still available for me and those people to enjoy, you know? And so like I said, if you die hard and you want it, it's, it's there for you. If you don't stick with the free stuff, you'll learn a lot and eventually probably pick up on some of this, you know, it's win, win, either way you go.
1: And where do people find that course? Is that on your website?
2: Yeah. Website's tbwpodcast.com. Stands for Traditional Hunting and Wilderness Podcast. Even if you Google Traditional Hunting and Wilderness Podcast, you'll find it. But it's tbwpodcast.com. And then on there, right on the menu, it's hunting courses. Click on there and it'll take you right to it. You log in. It's actually hosted right through this company, um, and so it's all stored on their servers, backed up on their servers. Like I said, so you can access it anywhere. Uh, you get your own private login, your email, and a username and password that you create and you keep, and that way you have your own in- individual, dedicated setup. It tracks you in the course. You can actually set favorite everything for you. Like I said, it's a pretty brilliant system. I-, I love the whole concept.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be telling people about it because I- I've followed your stuff for. For years, and I think you have good content. Thank you. Absolutely. That'll do it for this week. Jason mentioned his website, but you can also find him on YouTube and Instagram by searching Traditional Bowhunter and Wilderness Podcast, or TBW Podcast. As always with our podcasts here on the Sportsman's Nation, be sure to share a link for your friends, leave us a review on iTunes, and check out the pages on social media. I know our podcast has continued to grow and is doing well, and we really appreciate the support. But not only that, the network as a whole is really growing rapidly, which is very exciting. Thanks for listening.